What's your name? Ron Flores. How many years did you play professional baseball? I played a total of 10 seasons of pro baseball. What do you do now? I pastor a church here in Las Vegas, Nevada. Coming up on this edition of Life Around the Seams, the pitcher becomes the preacher. Ron Flores went from praying to the baseball gods to just flat out praying. Okay, I know all of this is a stretch. This is really corny, but work with me. Uh, <laughs> our guest is Ron Flores. He has a fascinating story about getting into baseball, his family with faith and with baseball, and he is our guest on Life Around the Seams. Former Major League pitcher Jim Bouton once wrote, You spend a good piece of your life gripping a baseball, and in the end, it turns out, it was the other way around all the time. Welcome to Life Around the Seams, a podcast about baseball people who have interesting stories from between the lines, and sometimes even more interesting stories outside the lines. Here's your host, Josh Sushan. Great intro. Yeah. All right. <laughs> that was all right, Ron. Thanks for joining me on uh, this edition. It's good to see you. It's been since, I think, 2006 was the last time I saw you, probably. Yeah. It's 05, 06, you were you know, prowling the Oakland clubhouse <laughs> looking for anybody that you could corner in, the, in, the, in their locker <laughs> to get a bit here and there. And I was just new to the big leagues then. And I mean, I was only new to the big leagues. I never was there long enough to be anything but new. Um, but I was happy to, to 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 get cornered by you and to fill up your notebook because to me that was like a dream come true. Okay, so this is going to be very self-serving. This okay. is going to be uh, – I might need Tommy John surgery because I'm going to pat myself on the back so hard. It, <laughs> but I'm going to start off by reading an article that I wrote about Ron Flores. Okay. This article appeared – I'm not going to read the whole thing, but I want to get to the money quote. Okay. Uh, this appeared June 28th of 2005. Okay. Dateline is Oakland, California. Here we go. As the 870th overall selection in the 2000 draft, Ron Flores knew his odds of reaching the major leagues were slim. So he did something rare for a 29th round pick. He held out. Not for the truly big bucks, but for a few extra thousand dollars to complete his final two semesters at USC. Unlike the majority of major league ballplayers, Flores went back to college and earned his degree. The 25-year-old Flores, who the Oakland Athletics called up from the minors 10 days ago to join the bullpen, is the ultimate underdog. Never previously on the ace 40-man roster until this year. Never selected in the Rule 5 draft by another team. Never appeared as a top 10 prospect by Baseball America. Never even been in a major league training camp. But all he did was keep getting people out. A 3.43 ERA in 219 games and 9.58 strikeouts per nine innings, even if it seemed like nobody was paying attention. All this is why Rick Magnanti, the Oakland A's area scout for Southern California, who signed and scouted Barry Zito and Bobby Crosby, among hundreds of others since he started his career in 1981, said Flores is, quote, without a doubt, the most gratifying signing of my career. I still get goosebumps just thinking about him. It's a feel-good story. It's been a long road for him to reach the majors. It's a good example for kids out there. Yes, I can get a degree and play in the big leagues. Wow. 
That's some quality writing there, pal. Well, thank you very much. Again, uh, paging, uh, paging James Andrews. I need Tommy John surgery for patting myself on the back here. I still have a couple of those articles. My dad has them in his yeah. display, you know, case. You know, that was that felt like the I had arrived. It felt like that was the culmination of of. 20 years, really, that it all, I would do it all again just for that one article. Oh, <laughs> you're too kind. Tell me about Rick Magnanti. Yeah. He was the one scout that I talked to in college. I mean, I, I, I hardly even pitched at USC my first two years. I mean, I went there because my older brother went there. He, he was four years older than me and um, went to USC. And when I was, he was a freshman in college when I was a freshman in high school. And all he did was become the most winningest pitcher in USC history. I mean, the guy, he went like 42 and 8 in four years. It was ridiculous, you know? And, and so he's obviously a legacy. And as he's getting ready to, to leave after his senior year, I'm a senior in high school getting ready to, to graduate and try to figure out college. And I had decent grades. And, you know, I was a lefty and I could throw strikes. And I had a pretty good run in high school. But, the, but USC gave me a shot to go to school there. Almost seemingly just because Brandy was my older brother and he was pretty good before me, you know, and I could I could bolster the team GPA, you know, <laughs> that's kind of the reason why I was there. So my freshman year, I think I threw 15 innings, barely my sophomore year, I think I threw even less, like 10 innings, and I'm halfway through my junior year, my junior season, and I'm still like a third of an inning a week. I just wasn't part of the plans, and somewhere in the middle of my junior season, something clicked, kind of grew into my body a little bit. I figured out how to throw my changeup for strikes, was able to hit spots. I, almost like I, I, I kind of grew into a pitcher in the middle of my junior year, and I caught fire. Like, I just there's a bunch of games in a row where I was just pitching really, really well, and Rick McNante was the one scout that reached out. And said, hey, would you play? Would you consider, I mean, I was obviously going to be a late round pick. And I wasn't going to be, you know, it wasn't going to be for huge money or anything like that. But he was, so he was just doing his homework. Like, would this be a wasted, wasted draft pick? Would you sign if we drafted you? And I, of course, didn't know what to say. And I was overwhelmed. You know, this is towards the end of my junior season. And we're, you know, we're getting ready to go to the playoffs. And hope, and we ended up going to the College World Series. Uh, but I said, uh, uh, I don't know. Let me call you back. And I called my brother. Like, what do I say? You know? <laughs> and so he was four years into, you know, three years into his professional career. So he had been down that road with uh, being drafted and all that. And he's like, he was asking me, he's like, well, do you want to? And I'm like, well, of course I want to. But, you know, like I, I my whole life had just been copying what my older brother did. I mean, I went to the same school as him. I did the same sports when we were a kid. I just followed my big brother. I was just the, the younger brother that just was smiling and along and, and playing along with my older brother. It's like, but Randy, you came back to your senior year. Isn't that what I'm supposed to do too? And he's like, Ronnie, if you, he, well, he calls me Ronnie. Ronnie, if you, if you want to, like, if it's the right call to leave, then think about it, you know? And I'm okay. Well, what do I tell the scout? And he said, well, if I get, tell him, if I get drafted on the first day, I'll sign. And I didn't even know what that meant. <laughs> it meant, I don't know, the first 10 rounds or so. I think it was, I don't yeah, know what it is that. now, 10 rounds. If I yeah, could, back then it was be the first 10 rounds. 10 rounds. If you draft me, if I could draft it on the first day. Because it sounds like you know what you're talking about, uh -huh. you know. Right. I had no idea. But if I get drafted on the first day, it's a slam dunk. If I don't get drafted on the first day, it'll take a big decision because it's USC and I want to come back, yeah. you know. And so I told him that, not uh, having zero idea what any of it meant, you know. And he goes, "Really? Huh? First day, huh? All right. Well, have a good day, Ron." <laughs> and that was it. And I was like, "Cool." I really showed him, you know, and went <laughs> went along with my life. And thinking, no big deal. I was thinking, maybe this is going to, you know, break the seal. Maybe other teams will call. Nobody called. 
No one cared. I think Magnante was was at a USC UCLA game that I started at. I was a starting pitcher, you know, towards the end of my junior season, and I pitched really well against UCLA. They were the number two team in the country at the time, and I, I, we won like five to two or something. And he was just taking a flyer. Mm-hmm. And then come draft day, it's right before um, the College World Series. We had just won the regional, super regional in Georgia Tech, and we were practicing, getting ready to go to to uh, to, to Omaha. And the draft was that day. I didn't even know the draft was that day. I had no idea. And one of our clubhouse guys, hey, Flo, congratulations, man. 29th round. Like, 29th round of what? What is it you're referring to? Come here, you got drafted, the Oakland A's. What? What are you talking about? So you had not talked to Rick between that conversation and the draft. I think he called me maybe one or two more times and okay. was just confirming, like, hey, yeah. you know, would you do it? And I was like, by then I kind of figured out like what I was asking. Like mm-hmm. I'm asking for the top ten rounds, it's just not realistic, you know? And he was he was making the case of, Hey Ron, if you were to come back to your senior year, all three of the your team's weekend starters, Friday, Saturday, Sunday, that's how college baseball mm-hmm. is. There's Friday, Saturday, Sunday, and then a midweek game on Tuesday. I was the midweek starter, and I was a closer on weekends. And, he's, and Rick was like, Ron, all three of those weekend starters are coming back next year. So if you come back next year, you're not going to improve your draft status. You're going to be the midweek starter and the, kind of the, the last guy on the, on the totem pole. It would be a good idea to, to – so he's, he, he knew the drill. Yeah. He knew what I was facing, and, and he, it was, he was right. It was the right call. Um, but I wasn't expecting it at all. And all of a sudden, I'm like, oh, my gosh, I, I could actually leave. I could go from being the midweek starter and closer that was instrumental in the postseason run that we had. And it was fun, but not a guy, not like a major prospect, to all of a sudden now, like, oh, I, think I, might, I think I might leave. I think I might do it. And we ended up, I ended up pulling the trigger and, and signing. It was crazy, man. I wasn't expecting it at all. That's awesome. That's totally awesome. We're yeah. going to rewind to early stages of your life. <laughs> okay. uh, you started to talk about your brother. Yeah. Explain uh, the relationship with Randy and, uh, like, what other sports you guys would play. What else, yeah. you know, were you, like, the annoying younger brother? Did you just idolize him or what? Yeah. I mean, I was the annoying younger brother. My, my brother nicknamed me the, the noise generator. <laughs> okay. Because I, I was just a loud kid, an annoying loud kid, you know. And we have a sister in between us. He's four years older, Randy in the, is, and then my sister Robin, who's actually on staff at our church uh, as well. She's the, 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 the most spiritual one of all of us, <laughs> you know. Um, um, there's the three of us, and between the three of us, I was the young, annoying, loud mouth kid. And that was, just tr- that was just following my brother around and following my dad around, you know. And, and so I... Um, we played. We played. We played a lot of soccer in Southern California. That was, a, you know, a big Saturday sport. And my dad, we were always active. My, it, we, we always used to say that whatever ball was nearest to my dad, that's the sport that we played. You know, and so it was. Did your dad play sports when he was younger? Yeah, he played. He was a baseball guy. He played um, intramural baseball at the Bible school that he went to. Okay. So it wasn't uh, an accredited type situation. It wasn't NAI or anything like that. But it was. It was. Um, he was the MVP of his Bible school baseball team. You know, was three hole hitter and the first baseman, and he was a stud. You know, okay. um, um, but yeah. So as a kid, we was we were always super competitive. You know, we we, we used to play uh, uh, hallway hockey with uh, spoons from the kitchen. Okay. And my dad would make a tape ball, and we'd use the wooden spoons. And it was just and whatever we played for, whatever we played, it was always loser does dishes. Or loser has to do chores. It was uh, and it was super competitive, and we weren't allowed to be disrespectful to my dad or to be mean to each other. And so it was just like we learned this healthy competitiveness, mm-hmm. you know. 
Um, and so within that kind of environment, I'm following my brother around where, where we played soccer a bunch. We played a bunch of baseball. When my brother uh, turned maybe 11 or 12, he decided he didn't want to play baseball anymore. All of his other buddies grew up and got taller and bigger, but he stayed the same size. He was really small. And so he decided, and of course I followed him, that he wanted to join a bowling league. How old is he at this point? He was 11, 12. Okay. And I was eight or nine, whatever, you know? Uh-huh. And so he, out of the blue, says, Dad, I want to join a bowling league. And my dad understood, like, okay, you're small, whatever, okay. Maybe it'll be a phase. Bro, two years, two seasons of bowling. I had my own ball and everything. I had my Your own shoes? My own shoes, the, the bag, you know, we just... Shine the ball? Shine the ball. We were, you know, we had secondhand smoke issues <laughs> from going in there as nine-year-olds, you know, and I had a, I had a, like a 91 average, I think, for two years. Okay. And, uh, and it was, that was two years, and my dad, of course, is just, you know, biting his tongue the whole time, like, my two athlete boys are stuffed into a bowling alley for two years until, grace of God, my brother finally decides, you know what, I think... You know, right in before high school, he was going to play a season before he got to high school. And I joined, I, of course, I'm going to play too. And I was, what, uh, nine years old at the time when we came back into baseball. And that was, once I came back, I, that, was, that, uh, that was my sport. It, yeah. was, it was baseball or, or bust. So um, we went to the same high school, and then I followed him to USC, and the rest is history. This story better be true about your dad. Okay. Your dad called you? In elementary school, he was put on hold for 15 minutes while they found you and brought you to the office, and he had a very important message to tell you. He needed to tell you that he beat Super Mario. It's true. It's all true, man. I can't believe you found that story, but it's true. Well, you tweeted it, so that's why it better be true. It's true. It was true. It was, I was in fifth grade, and for Christmas, they got us super, you know, the Super Mario thing, you know, and it was, that was the, that was the most expensive thing we've ever got. My dad was, my dad was, a, my dad and mom were both pastors. And so we were broke and, you know, we, we weren't, we weren't poverty stricken, but we didn't do a ton of expensive gifts like that. And so one Christmas we got the, the Nintendo power pack. It was the one with the, um, you know, the, it was like the floor mat with little dots on it and you run track and field. Oh yeah. Yeah. And you can do, you know, you can jump and do triple jumps and things like that, mm-hmm. you know? And we timed it, of course, where you just step off of the pad and your guy just flies into the crowd. You know, it was so much fun. <laughs> and we had Super Mario Brothers, and we tried all Christmas break to, to get through it, and we never could. And then we go back to school, or, you know, early January, and it was probably the first full week of January. I get a call. I get, you know, it's, I'm in the middle of fifth grade class, and someone from the office comes and says, hey, uh, Ron, you got to go to the office. to get." And back then, if you get a phone call, like someone's died, right. you know, or some like, emergency and so I'm putting – everyone's like, ooh, right. all the other – like, what happened, you know? And I get my backpack and walk over. And my dad, dad, is, what happened? Is everything okay? And he's like, Ronnie, I did it. I did it. What? Yeah, Ronnie, I did it. I beat Super Mario. You're not going to believe it. I beat it. Dad, are you serious? That's what you – he was on hold for 15 minutes. And I go down there and he's like, are you serious? He's like, yeah, there's so many turtles with firepower. You have to have firepower. You're not going to get through the turtles with axes unless you have firepower. And I'm like, dad, I got to go back to class. Like I, I was a fifth grader 
talking to my dad like he was a little boy. Like it was that's the kind of upbringing, the, the fun loving upbringing that I had. Oh my goodness, I love it. All right, so uh, you guys grew up in Pico Rivera, according yeah. to Google Maps. That's about halfway between Dodger Stadium and Angel Stadium, yeah. give or take. Yep. Uh, how often would you go to um, to both of those ballparks? We were not Angel fans. We were Dodger fans. My dad made sure certain of that. Okay. My his dad, uh, Gramps, we called him. He was a he was a huge Dodger fan. And back then it was the what was it, the California Angels, mm-hmm. um, and they weren't any good. And so we were we were Dodger people, you know. Um, we went to a bunch, you know, not a bunch, but we went to plenty of games as a kid. Um, to, is there a most famous game that you remember seeing? Um, probably the one that my brother and, and my sister and my dad and I talk about the most was game one of the World Series, Kirk Gibson's home. You run. were at that? No, we weren't there. Oh, okay. But I was. We were watching it, and the story is is that um, um, my brother and I were we were we were watching the game, you know, a lot, you know, on the TV. My dad had called some type of church meeting. He's pastor in this this church in Pico Rivera, and he says, like, we got to have this meeting with these people, and we're doing a prayer thing, and we're getting together at our house, you know? And so these five or six people come, and they're in the den talking and praying and thinking about church stuff, and he's like, guys, you guys got to be quiet over here as, we're, as I'm watching, we're watching the game. And so we're quietly talking about, you know, we're coming back, we're coming back, and then Gibson hits that home run, and we're screaming and going nuts, and he's coming over there trying to pray in the other room, and he's like, what are you guys doing? And we're like, Dad, Gibson just hit it out! And he, of course, he's like, wait, wait, hang on. And he's watching this TV with us, like, and he puts his arms down, like, I gotta go back to the TV, you know? (laughs) And he uses that example to this day as a reason. He's like, Ron, if there's an important sporting event that you can watch with your kids or an important thing... Blow off the church meeting and go spend time with your kids. You'll never get those times back. So yeah, we still think about that. Today. So I was going to jump ahead to this later, but this is a good segue now. So spirituality was a big part of your life growing up. Yeah. This wasn't like something out of the blue that you decided to do after your career was over because you said your mom and dad were both pastors. Yeah. Yeah, it really was. I, I had never had any uh, aspirations um, of be- getting into ministry, you know, Um I mean, when I was in maybe fourth or fifth grade, I was thinking, yeah, I'm going to be just like my dad. I'll pastor a church someday. But when I, you know, once I, once I started playing ball, and especially as when I got to the big leagues, it was, it's baseball or bust. I mean, you, I mean, you, you have been around that. The mm-hmm. lifestyle and the, and the world of, of big league baseball is intoxicating. It's amazing. And so when I, when I got to that level, it was, and even before that, it was, I'd like to stay in the game as long as I can. It's, you know, um, what's, what's the line that most guys hang on to the game uh, longer than they should, not because of their love for the game, but because of their inability to function anywhere outside of the game. Mm-hmm. You know, it's, it's mm-hmm. their life, it's their world. And so I'll just find a gig in the baseball world. And so um, I had never had any aspirations of getting into ministry, but it was, I was, um, every off season, I was at my dad's church and I was as involved as we could get. And my, my wife and I had said, once we retire from baseball, we're going to, you know, dive headfirst into assisting my dad at the church. I just wanted to go and be around. That was, that was our world was, I was at church, you know, Sunday in the day, Sunday morning, Sunday evening, Wednesday night, and a couple, you know, usually once another day out of the week all the time. That was just, we were church rats. That's where we grew up, you know? And so you're right. It wasn't out of the blue, um, but it definitely wasn't something that I was aspiring to be my whole life. Yeah. When when Randy gets drafted and he's playing minor league baseball, once you're out of school at summertime, do you ever go see him on the road with whatever minor league city he was at? Uh, when I was, when he was playing, but I was in high school or, or college. Yeah. No, he was, he, we would wait until he got home. I mean, it was, so you never really got to like really be around him and know what it was like. No. I mean, he told us, he told stories and it was cool, you know, but it was, um, it, yeah, 
minor league baseball is weird, man. Like it's not, it's, it sounds like, you know, like uh-huh. it's not, it, it sounds like fun externally when you're looking at it from the outside, outside looking in. But when you're in the middle of it, it's not something that you wouldn't want to invite people to be a part of, you know, <laughs> to be a part of my two bedroom apartment with six guys staying in there and there's no couch and our, co- you know, our coffee table is up, turned upside down laundry basket. And all we have in there is air mattresses and a TV and a PlayStation. Like that's not something that you want, you want to invite your girlfriend to or anybody to at all, you know? Yeah. And so it's like, let me just get through the season and come home. You know, that's, he, he was the same way as well. It was, you know, I'll, I'll, I'll finish the season out and I'll see you in the off season. You know, I read something on Twitter the other day about how, um, some players were returning the television that they bought from Walmart because Walmart has a 90-day policy. Took advantage of that a lot. Yeah. yeah. So then you'd wait two or three days, and then somebody, one of your other roommates would go and buy the, the, the TVs and then return it three months after that. It's a great setup, man. Uh, it's, it really is. Guys had it down to the day where, you know, and you keep all the box, you know, the, you keep the box, the packaging, every, all the wires, and you don't mess with the TV because that sucker's got to go back in a couple months, yeah. you know? And so, and, they, and Walmart knew, like... I think the the lady in Memphis knew us by name by the end of it because there was like all of us from the same apartment complex that would go there every couple of months to return. You know, we have to return this thing. It's not working anymore. And it, that was, yeah, minor league life, man. You make it work, you know. What are some of the other uh, like minor league life stories that how you make it work? You mentioned the air mattresses and I'm kidding, but you got married when you were still in the minor league. So how did that change your living situation? Well, I mean, it it wasn't Animal House. I couldn't do that anymore, you know? And so, um, yeah, there's there's levels of existence that you're willing to accept when you can't afford it, Mm -hmm. (laughs) you know? Um, And so the minor league life is, it's um, however you can make it work in terms of an apartment. And apartments will, um, you know, they're not, they're not, they don't always like to work with 22-year-old punks that don't have a down payment, you know, or a deposit or anything, you know? So, um, when I got married, it was, I, I, I got, I was engaged right before I went to, um, a season in double a. And then when we got back after that season, we got married and I went to triple a in Sacramento with her and we still couldn't have, just because I'm married doesn't mean I'm getting paid more. Like it's not like the military right. where you get paid more for certain things like that. You know, we, I was, I was, I, uh, was trying to make it work on that same first year AAA salary, you know? And so we, I had, a, I had, a, I still had a roommate and we had our, our oldest son, um, at the time. And so it was like, can I find a roommate that will live with a guy and his wife and their little kid? Like, and of course we did. It was actually a buddy of mine that that's still a good buddy of mine. His name is Mike Ziegler. He was okay. in the uh, A's organization for years and he's actually a scout, I think now with the, at the angels organization. Um, and he was willing to, he was willing to live. It was a great gig. He was willing to live for years. You Did know? he at least get some free meals that, that your wife would cook at all out of this? Yeah, he would, you know, and we got babysitting out of him every okay. now and then, you know? Uh-huh. And so, and then with the next year, we came with another kid. My daughter, you know, my oldest son, Ethan, was with us right away. And then Julia was born and she came and they all, they all loved Zig, you know? And so all, all guys with, that are broke but have families got to find somebody that you can will, trust that you can trust and will split the rent. And I can't believe Ziegler didn't demand that we pay two thirds of the rent because we had four bodies to his one. Wow. You know? That's a good friend. That's really, a good teammate. He was the man and, and the kids still talk of him and love him. And, um, he's a, he's a good buddy. Did you ever do the host families? I know Modesto would do that. Not every city would do that. Did you ever do a host family? I did in short season, uh, right out of the draft, mm-hmm. Vancouver, mm-hmm. um, BC, which I'm glad they had that because I wouldn't have known what to do as, right out of the draft, you know. Um, 
And it was, the, but that was the, that was the only year. And then the other year was when I played a year of independent ball, my last full season. I got released by the Cincinnati Reds on the last day of spring training in 2009 and hung around Vegas for a month waiting for a job that never came and then finally signed with the Long Island Ducks in the in, in the Atlantic League. And, um, th- I mean, if you think that minor league pay is small, independent league is – it's like the meal money. That's the salary, you know? Mm-hmm. And so they had host moms, and I, we stayed with a host family out there. This host, this host gal was awesome. So, okay. Yeah. All right, let's get into some uh, let's get into some baseball stories. You okay. played now in the early two thousands. The Oakland A's did this really weird thing with their farm system, where nowadays every team is required to have a Triple A team, a Double A team, a High A team, a Low A team, short season rookie. Yeah. But in the early two thousands, the A's decided we don't want a Low A affiliate; we want two High A affiliates, right. and they're both going to be in the same league. Yeah. So Modesto and Visalia were both Oakland A's affiliates, and yep. you were one year in each one of those. That's right. Is there any like? awkwardness stories that you remember where you were competing against someone who is in the same organization as you, but yet you're competing against them to get moved up to double a and you're competing on the field. Oh yeah. I mean, it was, there was weirdness. I I know that um, they did that for a few years and the year before that I was in Modesto, the guys talked all the time about the the year prior to that Modesto and Visalia brawled. They brawled? They brawled. (laughs) Same organization. They were just in spring training together a month ago and somebody was hitting somebody else a bunch and whatever. And they, they got charged. And the entire Oakland A's organization was having a, a fight on the middle of the field in Visalia, you know? So I wonder what Keith Lippman thought about that when he got that report. Like, please stay healthy, you know? Somebody <laughs> stop this madness, you know? Um, so, yeah, it was a little weird, especially because, there, you know, there what is there, 10 teams in the Cal League at the time, and there's two divisions of five, and so two-fifths of the Northern Division was Oakland A's teams. It was a little odd, you know? Uh-huh. Um, but what it did, what it did is, like, it... it, uh, it, it exponentially increased your likelihood of start, of playing at high A, you know? Right. I mean, it was, there was no low A to go to. So it was either you're in advanced A ball or you're going to rookie league. So Would players kind of think like, okay, Modesto's really like the low A team or Visalia's really like the low A team, or did you feel like it was balanced pretty even? It was pretty balanced. They, they, they specifically, like, addressed that in spring training. Like, we're going to make the teams even. We're not going to stack a team to be the good one and the ones the, you know, the cheapy team. Mm-hmm. They, they, it was pretty balanced. Um, but yeah, it was, it was, it was kind of funny that you were buddies with somebody in spring training and now, uh, you know, a week or two later, you know, you got to treat them like they're the enemy. Yeah. So, um, it was an odd setup. So you spent a lot of time on buses up and down interstate 99 in California. Oh yeah. What was your least favorite hotel in the California league? Wow. The least you're having me go back a long way. Um, Bakersfield has to be probably one of the worst places in on earth, you know, um, (laughs) You know, pardon to anybody who lives there because I'm California too. But it was the park was as bad as I've ever been to. You know, and in fact, the the um, I don't know how if they've made re- I'm sure they've made renovations by now. But they had the giant batter's eye in center field that was bigger than normal and higher than normal because the batter was facing the sunset, and so oftentimes they'd have to wait until like 7.35, 7.40, just for the sun to go behind the batter's eye because they couldn't start the game right. with the sun right in batter's eyes. Yeah. And so it was – and the park was – it was just a bad – the whole vibe was bad, you know? And so um, there was some there was some great road trips. And there was, you know, Ranch Cucamonga was fun. Mm-hmm. San Bernardino was fun. The SoCal, the SoCal uh, cities were usually pretty – Lake Elsinore was awesome. Mm-hmm. Bakersfield was rough. Yeah. That was a rough one. 
I remember the lamplighter in in Visalia. <laughs> yeah. Not, not for – I don't remember it yeah. well, I, yeah. but I remember it a lot. Visalia was one – actually, when I was in Modesto, I, did, we, did we do turnarounds to Visalia? Because it was only a couple-hour drive. You might, have done, you might have done turnarounds. We may have done some turnarounds, and so I never really actually stayed in the road hotel in Visalia. And then the next year, I was in Visalia, and I do remember guys complaining all the time about having to come to that park. It, mm-hmm. was, it wasn't the funnest, the funnest city. Yeah. Uh, when you got to Midland in 2003, was that the first year for the park in Midland, or was it? Wasn't it fairly new? It was fairly new. I think it was maybe one, maybe two seasons prior to my arrival there in '03. Um, it was really new. It was a beautiful ballpark. It was awesome, but it's Midland, you know, and so it's it's it was the dry desert. It was not a whole lot to do there. Super windy, mm-hmm. you know. There was one game we actually got winded out. Okay, first time I ever experienced that. It was too windy to play baseball, you know. Um, but it, was, it really was a great park, and I had fun in Midland. It was a good time. How much did that teach you about this is how I have to pitch when it's a windy, dry place where the ball's going to fly? I think it almost it gave me an advantage being a fastball changeup guy, you know, um, in that my, I, I wasn't counting on um, the, the moisture of the air to catch my slider as much as maybe other guys were counting on. You know, changeups will work in any – whether they're cutting or sinking or running or whatever, you know. And so um, – it, it really does. You got. I mean, there's. What's the line? Keep the ball down. You want to get moved up? Keep the ball down. Especially in the Texas League, and there's certain leagues where you just Cal League, Texas League, Pacific Coast League. You got to keep the ball down. You know, it, it's. You're not doing yourself any favors by by keeping the you know giving guys shots to get the ball out of because there's so many parks that that the ball just flies. Craig Lefferts, I believe, is the pitching coach. Lefty, and I remember yeah. Lefferts because he pitched for the Giants and growing up in the Bay Area, I remember yeah. him. I think he pitched for the A's and the Giants. Yep. Um, was because he was somewhat similar in size to you, yeah. and was I believe that he was fastball changeup, unless I'm mistaken. Yeah. Were you able to learn a lot from him? Big time. Lefty actually was the guy that taught me how to throw a slider. He was. It was funny when I first um, when I first got to Double A and I was working out with the Double A team in spring training. Um, and I had just finished two seasons of A-ball, the previous two seasons. Did pretty good, you know? Um, and it looked like it would be my time to get moved up to double-A. And Lefty was going to be the pitching coach there. Lefty, his big pitch was the screwball. Okay. He was a huge screwball guy when he was in the big leagues. And so he came to me and said, hey, Flo, I've been given the assignment to teach you the screwball. Because we're both lefties, and you know what? You don't have a good breaking ball, and so let me teach you how to throw a screwball. Maybe it'll work because you got a good changeup. Maybe the screwball will work. And so he gave me all these drills during spring training where he had me, like, what was the drill? To put a pillow, prop up a pillow on a bed, you know, in a hotel, take a knee, and then cup a, uh, a Coke can, like make a circle around the top of the Coke can with your fingers, and then try to... Pr- opposite pronate your throw and have the, the Coke can flip end over end over the pillow to try to get used to the movement of really cranking your arm to pronation, you know? Um, and so he taught me that and it was after like two weeks, I'm like, bro, my arm's going to fall off. Like I can't, I don't know how in the world anybody would ever do this, you know? And by then he had seen me actually throw the change up in games and he's like, you know what? Your change up is fine. Just use that. He actually finally said, well, let's stop doing this. But he taught me because at that point I was throwing just curveballs. I was throwing fastball, changeup, and a, and a roly-poly. One out of every ten was a good pitch curveball. And he taught me the grip uh, for a slider and said, gave me some simple cues on how to make it work. And it really clicked. It really did. And it really was, I think, that bit of advice that got me over the hump to move up into higher levels of baseball, that yeah. I can actually use a breaking ball. Um, it, it wasn't the best, but it was serviceable, and I could throw it for strikes and, and use it to get lefties out. Um, that was actually able to advance my career a lot faster than before. 
Let's talk about AAA Sacramento. Yep. Now, when you were there, so you were there for parts of five years, and yep. that was a time when Sacramento Rivercats are still fairly new, that ballpark is fairly new, yep. and they won the PCL title in 03 and 04. They went to the playoffs in 05 and lost. 06, they did not make the playoffs. 2007, um, they won the PCL title again. Um, how many times were you actually part of those playoff teams out of those five years? All of them. All o- of them. 03, I got called up to Sacramento the last month, like August, early August. And so I was there for the final month of the season in the playoffs in 03. And then all of 04 was there the whole way. Um, all of 05, I got called up a bunch that the few times in 05, so I wasn't there all season, but I was there for the run and everything. All of 06, I was up and down a bunch. All of 07, I was there for all of it. Like, okay. Like the, all the runs they made in the playoffs, so I was a part of it. I feel like that was a, a unique time in which – First of all, minor league teams don't usually win on a regular basis like that. And because Sacramento had this new team in this new ballpark, it from a distance it felt like there was a there was more of a kinship between the fans and the players and the team involving winning than you normally get in the minor leagues. Yeah. I, am I right? And what? How can you explain what that time period was like? I just remember I remember like the, the the front office people at Sacramento and guys that were around the team for a while saying that you know Sacramento really felt like they were ready for a major league club. Like they, you know, they had the Sacramento Kings there. And so they were, they were a big city in that regard. They had, they already had a, you know, a major sport that was, that was playing there. Um, And they, they acted as though the Rivercats were their big league club. You know, it was almost like there was a chip on the Sacramento shoulder. Like, well, we're the, we are a a good baseball city. Look, you know, like, look how, look how good our team is and look how much we support them. But guys, man, they, they sold out almost every night. There was eight to 10,000 every, it was so much fun. The vibe there, and the, and the front office did great there to to take to ride the momentum of the crowd's involvement. It was it really was fun. It, it was a it was a great time there, um, and it was it was like they they were they really were showing that they were a major league city. Okay, so honestly, come September, it's frequent that guys in the minor leagues are like, you know what? If I don't get called up to the major leagues, I'm done. I just want to go home. Yeah. How much did you guys really care about winning in the playoffs? It was like. Uh, <laughs> That's a great question. When when the game started, you cared. Okay. Every other point of the day, you could not despise it more. <laughs> okay. It was terrible. <laughs> I mean, you get paid the same hourly wage or the daily rate, you know, so your paychecks just continue. There's no playoff bonuses for minor league playoffs, you know, and so there's no financial incentive other than maybe get another half a paycheck, you know. Um and you see all your buddies going home, and you're wiped out, and you're tired, and you're like, I missed my opportunity in the big leagues. And there's still part of you that kind of is holding out hope that once the minor league playoffs end, that the big league club will come to their senses and call you up, or you know, maybe whatever. They, they, they didn't call you up before the playoffs because they needed to field a team for the playoffs in the minor leagues. And so you're still kind of, there's a little bit of you that's holding out hope that there's still a shot for you, you know? Plus, once the game starts, the competitive nature begins, and here we go. You know, let, let's, let's do good. And so... Um, there what the one year what was it oh um, seven was it where we won the whole thing um, in in Sacramento that was fun like there was a bunch of guys that were that 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 were hoping to get called up that didn't get called up and we kind of saw it coming and I was one of those guys I didn't go back up in September at the end of 2007 and so and there was a bunch of guys just like me that weren't going anywhere 
And so we kind of owned it, and we had a lot. We were like, "Let's go for it. Let's mm-hmm. win this whole thing," you know. And so we dogpiled in a way that that year, in a way that we never did in previous. Other ones, it was like we ran the field, we acted like we were happy, and then we just did a normal high five lineup, like it was a regular game in in July, you know. And mm-hmm. we went back and packed our bags and went home. But '07 was probably the one year, you know. We had uh, Jeremy Brown there, and uh, and and a, bu- a bunch of a bunch of fun guys. That uh, Keith Ginter, I think, was there. It was a fun year. That it was. Um, that was the one year that I remember having the most fun in the playoffs. Because I remember as someone who was covering the Major League A's at this time, uh, I covered the Major League A's 2004, 5, and 6. I remember yeah. Billy Bean always said, the most important thing to me every day is that the Oakland A's win, and the second most important thing to me is that the Sacramento River Cats win. <laughs> yeah. Like, yeah. was that... Was that communicated to, to the AAA team as much as he communicated that to the press? Not directly, but you could tell by how many like, minor league veterans they signed and put in Sacramento. You know, the, the, it, was, it was widely known in the A's organization from the minor leaguers themselves that it, it's hard to crack AAA with the A's. It just can be because they stack the team with a bunch of minor league veterans that have been around a long time, and they're not afraid to pay them. Mm-hmm. Like, the, like the big league club – they pinch pennies because of their market. But what's funny is that they actually, it seemed like they splurged on the AAA team. Because, <laughs> of course, minor league splurging is different than major league splurging, and you can do it and, and stack the team with some minor league veterans that, that are big league ready in case they're needed, but also add value to the AAA club that is that reflects in the wins. But they were also a team that, I remember Jack Cust and Matt yeah. Stairs and other guys were, they're yeah. putting up 30 homers, 100 RBIs every year, and no one will give them a chance. Right. And the A's would say, we're going to give you a chance. Yeah. And those guys did get a chance. They I did. don't know if Stairs or Cust would have ever made the majors if it wasn't for the A's. A's were a unique opportunity. They really were. I mean, it was, it's, I'm not sure how, I, I, I always, I think a lot about what my career would look like if it was with any, any other club. I mean, they were, they were progressive and cutting edge in 2001, 2002, in a way that no other club was, you know? And now, of course, with, you know, sabermetrics and statistical data and such, that it's analytics, that it's, you know, everyone has learned from the A's. But back then, they were, they didn't care what you looked like. They didn't care what you threw like. They didn't care how hard you threw. They didn't care about anything. They just cared about what your numbers looked like. Can you get it done in the field, you know? And that was unique. I mean, my brother was part of the Yankees organization. That's who he got drafted by. And he, he won... 10, 12 games every year in double-A with a three ERA and could not sniff triple-A, just could not get it. I mean, and why? Because he was throwing 88, 89 miles an hour, you know? If he was in the Oakland organization, he would have been in the big leagues two, three years prior, you know? Like, they didn't, they, it was really unique, the timing that I was in, in professional baseball, that I was with the team that they, they didn't care. They didn't care what you looked like. They didn't care. I mean, of course, that factored in to their draft, how they, how they handled the draft. And, of course, there's a certain measure of athleticism that you need just to get into the door. But um, yeah, they were a unique team and that they gave shots to guys that performed. So the book Moneyball, not the movie, but the book Moneyball came out in 2003, I'm pretty sure, which meant that Michael Lewis was working on it in 2002 yeah. when you were at Visalia. How much did you and your teammates know that uh, this fairly famous – writer from who mostly writes about wall street and stocks is working on a book about the a's um we knew that that was a thing we knew it was coming but mostly we knew that that uh the guys that were getting drafted in that 2002 draft were a different era we knew we knew it was like a fundamental change in fact that i was part of the 2000 draft um of, of oakland 
And the 2002 draft was the one where they fundamentally changed how they did the draft. And our draft, the 2000 draft class, were the ones that said our draft class was so bad that they had to restructure how they did drafting entirely two years later. Like, we were that piss poor of a draft that they had to change everything about the draft and how they do things, you know? So um, we knew of Nick Swisher, you know, we knew... But also Jeremy Brown. Jeremy Brown. John Baker. All those guys. And those guys, and what made them unique was that uh, Oakland immediately, not not right out of the draft, but really quickly put them from short season up to high A, which was a big jump. You know, it is a big jump. And even if even now, if someone's going to jump out of rookie ball to a higher level, they go to low A. But we didn't have a low A. And so they were making this massive jump almost directly from the draft up to the Cal League, which rubbed all of us other teammates wrong. Like, bro, I'd grind it out for two years before I can get to this level, you know? And mm-hmm. so they, those, guys, uh, those guys had an advantage with the draft that they were in, but they certainly didn't have an advantage with all the other guys that didn't have that same advantage, you know? And so um, just socially and personally, you know? And so we gave them a hard time when they first got there. Like, I mean, I wish I was, wish I was in a book, bro. They would, they would stick me in double A by now, you know? And so, um, but those guys were the real, they, they, they could play, you know? They were, it was... You can tell it was the changing of the guard. We started to talk about this off the year before we started recording this, about how you were a you were a left-handed pitcher who didn't dominate left-handers and you didn't throw really hard. Yeah. Do you think that because the A's were so progressive at that time that that gave you a better chance to stick around in the organization? I think so. I think so. Um, they, I, I wasn't a, a lefty specialist. I wasn't used as a lefty specialist. In fact, when I was in single A, they were – they they didn't have a five man rotation. They had it was what was it called? It was an eight man. Oh, and that, someone they doing the piggyback thing? Yeah, eight man piggyback where there was there was two guys that split a game, and they had a four man rotation for that. And so that's eight guys that were would you know that that was the rotation. And, and so they would throw like sixty to seventy pitches instead of ninety to one hundred. Exactly. And so one guy would throw four innings, go and pitch into the fifth, and the other guy would come in throw the end. And I was. I was one of the lucky guys, the lucky three guys that was on the pitching staff that was not part of the piggyback rotation. And so I, <laughs> I was just a back-end bullpen guy that maybe threw one-third of an inning in the fifth inning just to connect the two piggyback guys, you know? Tandem starters, that's what they call okay. it, tandem. And, um, and so, they, yeah, right off the bat, it was, it was a different kind of organization. It wasn't what you would normally think. And so there was um, – there was there was there was some opportunities to to get in there that I think that that was just unique to the organization and so um, by the time my first full season was coming to a close they were they had abandoned the tandem rotation idea and they went to a five man and I was I was one of the main bullpen guys that was you know you're just, you're just trying to survive the season and they're giving me opportunities that it's quite I honestly don't think that I would have had that as many with any other organization. Well, speaking of surviving the season, uh, yeah. let's talk about surviving the Pacific Coast League. Uh, <laughs> yeah. We are recording this from the new ballpark yeah. in uh, the master-planned community of Summerlin, Nevada. Yeah. <laughs> uh, what are your memories of Cashman Field? Oh, I just remember I remember standing out there during batting practice when it was 115 degrees at 4 p.m., the hottest point of day, you know, 4 p.m. for batting practice, and the ball just flying out, the wind howling out to left field, and all the guys in the bullpen mysteriously came down with sore shoulders right before the game and just could not pitch for the next four days exactly while they were in Vegas. It was a, it was a brutal place to pitch in. You know, um, the thin air and the wind blowing out and the dry air makes it a little bit more difficult for the ball to move and cut and curve the way that you want it to. Um, and so pitcher, I mean, hitters loved it. 
they loved playing there. Um, but I mean, Cashman, it wasn't in the best side of town. Um, it wasn't the funnest road trip, you know, and then we stayed in the golden nugget, which smelled still like Dean Martin's ashtray. You know, it was that kind of vibe, you know? And so it was like, yeah, it's Vegas, but nah, not the fun Vegas, you know? And then, yeah, it's baseball in Vegas, but not, it's not that great in the bull and the, and the visitor's bullpen was right next to the beer garden that was on the field level. And if you were unfortunate enough to be there on Thirsty Thursday, just pack a lunch because they're going to be in your ear. Those Vegas, you know, you know those Vegas 22-year-olds had a ball sitting right behind our bullpen. So <laughs> that was pretty fun, too. This field here. this I was about to say, does this make you jealous when I tell you that we're staying across the street at the Red Rock Casino? Are they really staying yeah. at the Red Rock? Yeah, we stay at the Red Rock. Yeah, I, I just walked across the street to get here. Oh, my gosh. And then this uh, amazing facility, it better be. They spent $150 million on it, but this amazing facility with a pool in right center and right next to where the Golden Knights practice facility is. This is – it's I, – I couldn't, couldn't imagine as good of a road trip in baseball with – the red, knowing that they're staying at the Red Rock, and you got downtown Summerlin just right here with all these great shops and shopping and restaurants, and you walk to the ballpark. Everyone's wife and girlfriend is on the trip, yeah. right? Because they all <laughs> yeah. want to come here, yeah. right? Like, you know, most of the time they wanted to come just because it's Las Vegas, but Golden Nugget and downtown, eh, but now, like, everyone's wives and girlfriends wants to come on this trip now. I don't blame them, man. I, honestly, downtown Summerlin is like my, my wife and I's like weekend date spot every weekend we end up let's make our way down there's a, co- a couple coffee shops that we love and a couple of restaurants like that's where we go right now on our spare time for fun and to have them like actually stay in there what a what an upgrade man what it a is. massive upgrade yeah. from what was before yeah i always say that the worst trade that ever happened people always talk about like uh, baseball trades yeah. but i say no the worst trade that ever happened is that the pacific coast league used to have a team in hawaii and that got moved to colorado springs <laughs> So that's the worst trade in baseball history. But the best trade in baseball history, at least minor league history, might be Cashman Field to Las Vegas Ballpark and the Golden Nugget to the Red Rock Casino. Unbelievable, man. Part of me is really, really jealous of all the punks that get to stay at the Red Rock Hotel, but also at the same time, like, all right, much better than than what we had before. So good for you guys. Let me talk about some other uh, ballparks that no longer exist. When you went back to Rosenblatt Stadium in Omaha as a professional baseball pitcher, what memories did that trigger? from the College World Series experience? Oh, a bunch. I remember, uh, you know, dogpiling my freshman year. I was on that travel squad. I didn't pitch much, like I said, but I was on the bottom of the dogpile for that. That was as fun as it can get. Was that the year that the final was like 21-14 to against ASU? 21-14. We lost our first game against LSU, and then we battled all the way through the loser's bracket, beat LSU twice to get to the final. It was a a great team, you know? and got got to the got to the end, and, and it was it, the wind. Of course, was howling out, and it's 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 a Pacific Coast League ballpark, you know. So the ball's going to fly. It's yeah. just like that's a prerequisite. To be I think they PL. also changed the rules for bats as a result of that year. Yeah, they were using lightsabers back then, and it was like the third baseman's going to get his head knocked off at some point, so they got to do something, you know. And so that that re- it did. There was a lot of talk of the need to change aluminum bats, and I think that 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 not so fortuitous final score of 21 to 14. It's looking like a foot, it literally was a football score did seem to be the final linchpin for them to, to, to make some definitive moves on the, on the bats. Yeah. You know? So, but that was, that was probably the biggest remembrance. And then the other one was, I mean, my junior year when we went back to the college world series again. So I went my freshman year and then junior year by my junior, year, I was, I was the, one of the main pitchers on the team. I was their closer 
And uh, my last college game was getting walked off, giving up a walk-off single <sighs> to Florida State really? to lose the game. I still have the tape and seeing me walk off the field with my head down. And it, I mean, it was, it was, the college was here was so much fun. Like, it really was. It was, college baseball is, was probably the, besides the big leagues, was the, the funnest baseball that you can get. Mm-hmm. You know, it really, major college baseball, um, where, I mean, 95% of the guys on the team don't have any realistic expectations of getting drafted or going to the big leagues. I mean, that this is the big leagues for them, you know? And so, and it's the same team all year, and the parents get involved, and it's like a family, and, you know, you're just trying your best to get as far as you can. USC was about as fun of a college experience as I think you, you could get. It was really awesome. How often would um, all the famous USC alums come back? Would they do that for baseball the way they do for football? Yeah, they do uh, – a Hall of Fame game every year, you know, where all the guys come back. There's guys that come back from years ago that come every year, you know. And so, and USC has a really storied tradition, you know, that goes back a long way. Um, and so, there's it's it's usually a, a it's a it's a pretty well attended alumni game. You yeah. Know? So it's good stuff. But yeah, uh, Rosenblatt was. It's a different experience when you're in AAA <laughs> than when you are, mm-hmm. in, you know, because that for for one, there's probably 25 people in the stands as opposed to 25,000, you know, when you're in college, and so. It's always a little depressing when you see this massive stadium, this beautifully massive stadium, and nobody's there. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, it's almost like you'd rather play in a small ballpark that's just kind Which of Which is what they did. Yeah. So, so they moved 22 miles west to Papillion for that exact reason. They moved there in 2011, and Rosenblatt got torn down. Right. It's now the parking lot for the zoo, and they built a new – I call it the new Rosenblatt. Its yeah. official name is TD Ameritrade. TD Ameritrade, that's right. Yeah, and so the minor league team basically, yeah, they got tired of – so even though they were there more often, they were the second-class citizens because right. it was all about the College World Series. Yep. And so they moved 22 miles west in order to have a, a ballpark that basically sits 10,000. Wait, so the TD Ameritrade, how often does that get used? Is it just once a year? I think the University of, uh, I think, Creighton. Creighton. That's Creighton right. uses it for, like, a weekend uh, conference games, but probably doesn't use it for the Tuesday midweek game. Wow. And then I don't know what other events that they use, but it can't be get used very often. That's crazy. Mm-hmm. Good for them. Mm-hmm. Good for the minor leaguers because it is kind of depressing, you know, to, to play. Into, yeah. You know, it doesn't matter how big the crowd is. It's going to be. Plus, the strong. Omaha Royals would have to leave on a two-week road trip. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and, that w- and so that was always the reason. This is what I've been told. So I was not in the PCL then, but I've always been told, oh, the reason why the schedule is so weird in the PCL is because of the College World Series and Omaha has to leave for two weeks and that messes up everybody. Yeah. That's not the case anymore, not really. but the schedule's still really weird. <laughs> It's a good scapegoat, though. That's probably why it took them so long to make the change, you know? They liked having the, the, the Omaha Royals to blame for all the problems, you know? That's so funny. Uh, let me ask you about our mutual friend, Johnny Doskow. Okay. He is the one who uh, let me know what you're doing with your life these days. Yeah. And I recorded a podcast with him a couple of months ago. And yeah, spent... I listened to it. Oh, yeah, you did? I did. Okay, so as you know, we spent most of it talking about the different pranks that he has pulled or that uh, have been pulled on him. Yeah. Do you have any memories of, of a really good prank involving Johnny Dasko that you were involved in or witnessed or anything like that? He loved airport antics. It was always something at the airport. And it made a lot of sense because during game days, the guys are busy and they're doing their thing, you know? But so he, whenever we were at the airport, he was the master at, he called it RP, role-playing. Mm-hmm. He's got a nickname for everything, you know? <laughs> and so he would role-play. And he, he, there was one, that he, he loved to play it up. Uh, that for some reason that we were all in the microchip industry. Okay. He loved that story. And so we would just start talking 
to each other. Me and it was him, me and maybe a handful of others that like were really good at just kind of playing along. You know, Dan Meyer was one of them. Sean Cohn was pretty good. Um, if some, I'm going to interrupt you. If someone was bad at role play, would you kick him out and say, "No, you can't do this"? Oh, heck yeah, you don't know how to RP, bro. You're brutal. <laughs> you know, beat it. But so and then we would just kind of move on and do something else. But so Johnny would just start talking. Out of the blue, we'd be standing next to somebody in line, and he would just start loudly saying, he's like, bro, listen, Bill McCormick in accounting is everything that is wrong with the microchip industry, and here's why. And he would just run through, he would just make it up, and we would like, we'd have to play along. We couldn't laugh or snicker, and we'd be like, yeah, the way I would, Dan Meyer would jump in and say, yeah, the way he treated Nancy, it was not okay. That was really, not, and I would jump in. You know, I think Bill is on the cutting edge of the microchip industry. He gets it. He really does. And like, so we would, he was, he, he like trained us in how to just start talking as though we knew we were talking about, you know? <laughs> and so that he, we, that, that can go on for 20 minutes. Like we would just be talking about the microchip industry that was just non-existent, you know, and Johnny was the best at that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I know. This was every road trip, man. And this is all like at six in the morning because right. you got to leave early, yep. you know, everyone's tired, wiped out. And all of a sudden here comes Johnny. It's time to RP. It's time to RP. How did you find out you were going to the major leagues for the first time? Uh, in Sacramento, uh, in June, um, I remember it, uh, there was a game in Sacramento. It was really, really cold and windy that day. And all the wives went, most of the wives went home except for my wife and stayed with our, our two kids at the time. And it was a game that I thought I should have pitched in knowing how the game went. We had a one run lead in the eighth and it was like, there were some lefties coming up in the bottom of the eighth or top of the eighth. And it was like, this is my, this is my inning. It should be me. I didn't pitch. And I was like, kind of perturbed like what why didn't i pitch there it seems like it was pretty obvious it was my turn we get into the club but we actually won and we were in the middle of a long road a long winning streak you know we won like six seven games in a row so we high five after the game we go into the clubhouse and tony d tony d francesco he says hey team meeting team meeting after the game and we're all like you don't do that in the middle of a seven game winning streak like it's 11 o'clock we want to go home and it's cold and windy let us out of here like everyone's like what a team meeting and he calls his team meeting and he says you know what? Hey, we're in the we're, we got this winning streak going. Things are going well, but I still feel I still feel like we're not concentrating as much as we should be. Hey, who's who's the team captain? Who's the team captain? And just as a joke earlier in the year, they had said that I was the team captain. I'd been there, you know, how many years in a row, you know? The mayor of Sacramento. Mayor by then, you know? And and the whole point of the team captain was to monitor and regulate whether guys were playing cards and dominoes too close to game time. And so the team captain was the, the, the killjoy that came, all right, that's enough, everyone, let's go play, you know. And so that was my, I was the team captain. So he's like, so here we are in mid-June, and he says, okay, we're, we're still not concentrating enough. Who's the team captain? And I'm like, I raise my hand, like, uh, are you talking about me? And he's like, yeah, Flores, you know what? Guys are still playing cards. They're not concentrating. You know, there's not enough concentration taking place. You know what? We're getting rid of you. We're sending your act to Oakland. And the place, like, had this – for a while, we were, everyone was stunned that he was even saying any of this. Like, what is going on? How, how is he we're, – we're winning? What's the problem? And why would you blame the te- pseudo-team captain for a lack of concentration? And so they were stunned that that was taking place. And, uh, like, a brilliant acting job by Tony D. He really did – like, and this isn't common. Normally they call a guy into the, t- the manager's office and says, hey, you've got to go in the big leagues. We'll see you tomorrow. Whatever, you know. But he did this whole spiel – 
He RG'd. He RP'd. Or RP'd. RP'd. He RP'd. He goes, Flores, we're sending your act up to Oakland. And everyone paused for a second. And then I just remember the whole place erupted. Oh, my gosh. You know, and I was like, I was like in tears and I'm hugging guys. And I was like a blur, you know. And then I remember um, I had to, I was leaving the next morning and I had to play, I had to pay the clubhouse guy my clubhouse dues. I mean, it was, you pay at the end of a homestand. You know, and we were in the middle of a homestand, and I, so I didn't bring my checkbook, and I wasn't ready to pay the guy for the four days or so that I was there. So I called my wife, and I thought she was home by now. I thought because it was cold, and I thought all the wives went home. And so I, I called her, like, hey, sweetie, do you have the, do you have the checkbook? And, I, and she's like, what are you talking about? And, she, and I'm like, oh, wait, are you here? Are you at the, at the apartment? She's like, no, I'm here. I'm like, oh, do you have the checkbook? Great. And she's like, she, she knew, wait, that either means you only pay to use the checkbook at the end of the homestand, and the only time you would use it in the middle of it is if you either got released and you were going home or you were getting sent down or you were getting sent up. And so I'm saying, babe, I need the checkbook. And she's like, what? Yeah, babe, like, could you have the checkbook? Can you, run it? Can, you, can you pull it out of the car? And she's like, you tell me right now, Ronald Flores, what is going on? I'm like, babe, I'm going up. I'm going up. What? I'm like, where are you? She's like, I'm in the player's parking lot. And so I hung up and I ran outside. And I remember opening the clubhouse door. And the player's parking lot was uh, up a grassy hill berm from the player's door, you know, in the clubhouse. And she gets out of the car and the kids are in the car and it's cold and windy. And I'm, I'm like, she's like, are you serious? And I go, babe, I'm going up. And I'm running up the hill to go give her a hug. And she's running down and she was charging at me like a rhino. And I was like, she jumped at me and I'm thinking, don't get hurt. Don't get hurt. This would be the dumbest injury of all time. Wait till you're on the active roster before you get hurt. And she, we, she jumped on me and we rolled and we kissed and we hugged and we cried and, and our kids were looking out the door like, what is going on? What's wrong you know? with mom and dad? Yeah, and it was, it was euphoric. It really was. It and then was, who do you call? Do you call your brother or your parents first? I, who did I call first? I think I called my dad and mom. Um, I, I left a message with my brother. It was, he was in the East Coast playing you know, someplace, and so it was really late, and he didn't call me until the next day. Um, but, yeah, all the phone calls. And the, I remember the, all the, my, my whole family and a bunch of friends – that were in now living in Vegas by now um, came out to Oakland that the next day to come. And I actually pitched that first night in, in the Coliseum against the Phillies. And not only did you pitch against the Phillies, you're facing Jim Tomey. And I understand that you had a Jim Tomey baseball card back at home. <laughs> I did. It was the weirdest, man. It was, it was so bizarre. I knew that, the, you know, the, the bullpen coach said, Hey, uh, you got left, right, left coming up or left, right, right, left, something like that. I'm like, okay, great. I first guy's lefty. I'm thinking about what I'm going to do. And then I'm, I'm like, I'm, I'm warming up thinking, don't, I don't even want to look in the on-deck circle. Don't even look because you're going to get in your own head. And then I peeked. Oh, my gosh. You've got to be kidding me. The Hall of Famer, 500 home run guy. You know? Well, the, the crazy part about that was that before, um, when I was warming up, I had kind of an interaction with Ricardo Rincon. Remember the little mm-hmm. the le- the yeah. Mexican lefty there? Yeah. When I first got into the, that, the big league clubhouse earlier that day. I mean, I got there early, like at noon, you know, when you're, the stretch isn't until four. I was there early. I wanted to make sure I was settled and, you know, got my uniform and everything like that. I get there early and I'm trying on my uniform with Voos. Remember mm-hmm. Voos, the clubhouse guy? Yeah. And I'm trying on the jersey and Raccoon walks in. He's there early too to get treatment on his shoulder or something, you know, and he sees my jersey say Flores on it, you know. And so he assumes <clears throat> that I speak Spanish, <laughs> which I don't know a word of it. I took three years of it in high school, three years of it in college. I'm half Mexican. I still don't know a word of it, you know? And he comes by, and he's like, hey, Flores, you know? And I I had learned 
in my minor league life that there were certain phrases you can use in Spanish to kind of give the impression that you do know Spanish, but you really don't at all. And you're around so many Dominicans and Venezuelans and Mexicans. Like there's, they all thought, and it was like the like the biggest insult to them that I was, you know, that I was a coconut, you know, that I was brown on the outside but white on the inside, you know, that I didn't know the language. And so um, I had learned words like phrases. Like one of the phrases that I learned was suave, suave, bro. Like hey, suave. That could mean that's universal. It can mean anything. It can mean like take it easy or hell, chill out. I got or, this. I got this. Or calm down. Or or all is good. Or whatever. Suave, suave, and it can be used. So I see Rincon walks by me. Hey, Flores, honey. He says something. I go, oh, suave. And apparently the context was a little bit like it sounded kind of snarky because he was like, oh, okay, okay, Flores. Oh, you know, and he walks away. So and he, he thinks that I'm, I speak Spanish. So now that night, I'm warming up to get into the game. They tell me, okay, Flores, you got the seventh inning, whatever. I'm warming up, and I'm just – I'm scared as can be. I'm, you know, I, I, you, know you can't you, – you're, you're, you barely feel your legs, and you're just trying not to bounce the ball. And I'm, I'm warming up, and I, I, get, they, I go over to get a – a, uh, a cup of water right before I'm going to the game. I'm, I'm just, a, they, okay, the inning's over. Flores, you got it. And I'm like, my hand's shaking as I'm getting the cup of Gatorade before I go in. And Rincon walks over and he throws his arm over me. And he proceeds to give me what I would imagine would be the greatest Spanish pep talk that has ever been given to another non-Spanish speaking pitcher ever in history. Because he was passionate and he was using, he was demonstrative with his hands. And I, I picked out a few words like agresivo, concentration. You know, and I, I could pick up that it was a good thing that he was trying to really pump me up. Uh-huh. And he gets to the end of this like a good ninety second pep talk, you know. And I got to get out of there. I got to go. And he's like, and he gets to the end of it. And he's like, okay. And he's looking at me like to respond to like say like you know muchas gracias or something. But I I, I couldn't think of anything to say. And I just looked at him like, all right, bro, let's go get him. <laughs> and he gave me a look like. It was like this cocktail of anger and confusion and betrayal. He was like, looked at me like, you little faker. You don't know Spanish at all. You're a pocho. You, you know what I'm saying? And so I turned around and he, he gave me that look like, you've got to be kidding me, and walked away. And I jogged into my major league debut <laughs> thinking Ricardo Rincon wants to kill me after the game. And so in a funny way, it kind of like distracted me from like the – gravity of what was taking place here, you mm-hmm. know? And so I warmed up thinking, oh, my gosh, I can't believe that just happened. Rincon's going to kill me. Oh, my gosh, there's Jim Tomei. Like, I didn't have time to even really think about it, you know? Um, and then and faced Tomei, and, uh, you know, I, I, I just uh, – uh, Kendall called a first-pitch slider, and I remember thinking, don't make your first pitch in the big leagues be a hanging slider on Jim Tomei's back. Don't hit him. I had a, I had, sometimes I did that when I'm nervous. I would let up on breaking balls, and it would just spin, and it would hit the lefty in the back or in the whatever. And I was like, so I spiked it. It was straight into the ground. And the next pitch was a high fastball for 2-0. and And I'm like, am I going to be the guy that throws eight straight balls and gets taken out of his major league debut? This would be totally embarrassing. You know, that's literally going in my head. And then I threw a fastball down the middle, and he was right on it, but he tapped it foul. And then a 2-1 slider that he took for a strike, a good pitch. And then, I, and then I just cranked a couple of sliders in a row. He fouled one off, and then finally he swung and missed. And I, I honestly, what's funny about, the funny part about that was that, you know, when I, when, and, you know I, throughout my professional career, whenever I would strike a guy out, I would just turn around and start walking around the mound because the, pat, the catcher's going to throw it to the third baseman to throw it around, you know? Mm-hmm. And so I struck out Tommy, and I was pumped, and I, I, like, I quickly whipped my body around to, like, walk around the mound. And I hear, like, the ball whiz by my left ear. I'm like, what, what the heck is going on? 
Like, did they not throw the ball around in the big leagues? Is he mad that I turned my back? Is Kendall mad? Because Kendall was a, he was a hardcore dude. Yes, he was. You know? And you don't mess with Kendall, you know? And all these thoughts are going through my head. Oh, my gosh. Now Kendall wants to kill me, too. <laughs> He's trying to kill me with the ball. But it was actually he was throwing it to Chavez, the third baseman. But he was playing way over because, because of the, the shift. shift. And so it was, it was a tumultuous first 10-minute <laughs> outing, you know. When did you start breathing normally again? Once I knew that I was done in that game, I came out, and I think I got I struck him out, and the next guy got a pop-up base hit, and then uh, uh, I think Chase Utley hit a ground ball to first baseman, and we got the lead out, and the next guy popped up in the first pitch. And so I came out, and then Maka came over and said, okay, that's it. We got someone else coming in. It was like, ugh. Oh, all right, it's like I can relax, you mm-hmm. know. And I remember it was uh, Dan Heron, who was actually really good buddies with my brother Randy, and when he was in the St. Louis organization, and he was he came over and he was a buddy of mine, and he was like, "How you feeling? You doing all right?" And I'm like, "Bro, I can't even feel my legs. Like that was insane." And he was like, "I know, man. You did good. Way to go." And it was like a, oh my gosh. And then to know that I had a bunch of family waiting outside, and my phone had a bunch of texts and and calls and stuff. It was like, it feels like I can retire right now, and like. I I did it. Like yeah. I was it was it was this sense of vindication and validation for the years that I put into it. It was so much fun. You had a quote once to the great Melissa Lockhart. Yeah. And you said when you have a wife and two kids, <laughs> if you stay in minor league baseball for 5 to 6 years and don't make it, you're kind of an idiot. <laughs> yeah. But when you do make it, you are praised for sticking with it. That's true, man. I stand I stand by it. I stand by it. Not in the sense of you're dumb if you try, play minor league baseball and you don't make it, but it's when you have you know, dependence. <laughs> when you have mouths to feed and you're making 1000 bucks, 1500 bucks a month trying to chase a pipe dream. And you never make it when you could have spent all that time climbing up the corporate ladder or joining. You were an economics major. Right. You went to USC. It felt like I could have been using that time better, you know. And what was weird was that to think whether or not this was a good decision to stick it out or whether it was a horrible decision was not in my control. It was in someone else's control whether I was going to get called up or not. It was a very – it's a weird place to be in to know that 10 years of your life would be validated or not – based off of somebody else's decision, you know? And so that's kind of where that quote came from. Like if you're, if you stick around this long, you don't make it. You're like, wow, you're, you're, you're dumb. You shouldn't, you should have gone back to school or you should have started the, you know, the st- climbing the corporate ladder. But that it actually, if you get called up, you're, wow, you're such a perseverer. Mm-hmm. You really stuck it out, yeah. you know? And so it's, it was, um, it was, it was just, it was awesome to be able to know that, okay, no matter what happens, I actually accomplished my goal. Did Billy Bean or David Forrest ever, kind of give you some sort of like, hey, congratulations, welcome, or anything that kind of sticks out when you first got called up? Um, no, it's not really – I don't remember anything specifically from them. I do remember the following offseason after 2005. I had a pretty good, you know, 10 outings or so in 2005 in the big leagues. That following offseason, I'm just following everything I could possibly find on Oakland News, like who's who's going to stay, who's going to go, where's Rincon, what's Rincon doing, Is what's going to happen – and there was, I remember specifically reading an article that they were interviewing Billy Bean about the future of, of the 2006 team and him saying in regards to, they had just, they had just lost Rincon. Rincon went someplace else and they asked Billy what the plan was for the left-handed relief in the big league bullpen. And Billy saying, you know, we really would like to give someone like Ron Flores the chance to be the long-term solution for that. That was like the pinnacle of my 
like off season life at that point was that Billy really does want to give me a chance, you know, and he thinks highly enough enough of me to to give me a shot. So that was it was a fun it was a fun uh, season to to know that. So I had two stories that I was trying to I was trying to rack my brain about just like other like fun tidbits that I remember from from when you were in the major leagues and I was covering the A's yeah. and um and one of them dovetail into what you were just saying and, and I I might get the story wrong but I remember at some point it was just kind of chit chat in a clubhouse it wasn't for a story where I said. You know, is there someone, is there always one guy in the AAA team where if someone gets hurt, if someone gets traded, like they always know first that someone's going to get called up? And I'm pretty sure that you said, yeah, that's me. Oh, yeah. I was the transactions guy. <laughs> that was, I mean, it was, it was the guy that checks the transactions in the newspaper. You know, that was, because back then that's what you had. Was, that's all you had was just the, the newspaper article that said the transactions. And so there was, they called him the transaction guy. And that was me. I knew I had all the alerts up, I knew the websites, I knew. Um, the different uh, the forums, the chat rooms that talked about this stuff, and so I yeah I was I was Johnny on the spot with that stuff. Okay. You know? Especially in 2006 when I mean I think I was up and down five or six different times in the one year. You know, and so not only was I checking the stat, the transactions when I was in the minor leagues, but I was also checking them when I was in the big big leagues trying to you know see what was going. How long am I going to last? Mm-hmm. You know, like is there another move that's coming where I'm the 26th guy and I'm going to go? And so there's a there's a bit of a control freak in me that just wants to know, you know, I want to, what's coming my way rather than just, you know, winging it every day. I, I, I was really the guy that wanted to keep a handle on what was happening. You know, the other story that I remember was this would have been 2000, it was either 2005 or 2006. I think it was 2005 and it's the all-star break. Yeah, it is 2005. I remember uh, it's the last day of the all-star break. And it is a uh, optional workout at the Coliseum. And I remember I did not plan in advance, so I did not have a story for the first day coming out of the All-Star break. So I'm kind of panicked. I'm like, I don't have a story. I don't have any quotes. I don't know what I'm going to write. So I show up at the Coliseum. I have no idea who's going to be there. And maybe I can find, like, some story. And as it turned out, I lucked into – I didn't find this out, like, way in advance. I, I basically knew an hour before it got announced that Eric Burns had been traded. Yeah. And if I remember correctly, you were there too. Mm-hmm. And I remember it was the only time – even to this day where I think that I've – where I was around somebody within five minutes or so of them being informed that they had been traded. Yeah. And, and I don't know what you said to Burns, but I remember, I remember that Burns was – he wasn't mad. He wasn't excited. He was, it was almost like he was just stunned. And yeah. there had been a lot of rumors about whether or not Burns was going to be traded for a couple of years. And I'm wondering, number one, if you remember that and just sort of like that – that transaction business side of baseball and what's that like when someone gets traded, the, that rawness. I don't remember specifically what I, what I said to Burns. He, he was a good dude. He is a good dude. Um, and he was, he was beloved in that clubhouse. You know, he was like the heart and soul of that team. And so it really was, even from the rest of us, who was like, what? If there's one guy, you don't, don't get rid of Burnsy. You know, I don't know what his contract situation was or what the, obviously they're going to make the right move financially. But there is, um, there is that, you do feel like you got, you kind of have to take on like you're just a robot. Like you you really have to re- detach yourself emotionally because if you ride the wave of feeling like you're a part of that family, <laughs> you'll feel like just you'll feel like a piece of a junk that's just thrown to the curb. When you're you know you're it's a, it really is a business. Like you you really do have to detach yourself 
emotionally so you don't get stepped on your you know, your heart it will just hurt too much you know and so but there's you're still a person though and so it still stings especially when you feel like as though you're beloved at a certain place and this is home to you and you bought a house there and your kids are in school and they love it and it's like and burns grew up in the bay area yeah, right that was that was that stung a lot you know and i could i couldn't imagine what it was like for him and i would imagine that he you know to you know, put a, a, a protective layer around his heart the rest of his career, like mm-hmm. yeah, <laughs> to not do get to get not get so devastated again. You know, so Bernsey was a good dude. He really is. I mean, even just from a transaction standpoint, I'm 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 going back and I'm looking at the numbers that you put up in your limited opportunities in the major leagues. But then I also went back and I looked at the starters were the starters back then threw a thousand innings <laughs> between Hudson Mulder and Zito and yeah. then Heron and Blanton and Harden. And I'm going back and I'm looking at it and I'm like, they barely needed their bullpen. Right. So nowadays most teams use 13 pitchers back then the A's would use 12, sometimes 11 yep. and their starters went so deep into the game. They didn't really need a bullpen as much. Right. And, Teams did not, at least the A's then, did not manipulate their roster, constantly moving guys around the way that teams do nowadays. And so I feel like nowadays you may have not gotten that same opportunity because all they care about is how hard you throw. But it made it harder for you to kind of like be needed because their starters went seven, eight innings almost every night. I mean, Joe Blanton was their number four guy, and he averaged pitching into the eighth inning every game like as their fourth starter, you know? And so – there was no game where it was like, oh, all right, here we go. We're gonna get, we're gonna get in there in the fourth or fifth inning. It was, you take your. I mean, I remember there was one. I remember laughing with guys that when I was in the big leagues, I was there for in '06. I was there for. Um, there was one particular stretch I was there for like two and a half months straight. It was my longest stretch consecutively in the big leagues, and there was one seat, part of the part of that time there. It was an entire pay period from the first to the fifteenth that I didn't pitch in a game at all. <laughs> An entire, I got an entire paycheck, and I didn't work at all. And I remember getting a paycheck, and I'm like, bro, I didn't pitch. They're like, bro, you just stole from the A's organization. Like, like that's how like good the you know the team was. Plus, I was the last guy in the bullpen. It was you know if I wasn't needed, I wasn't needed. So that's how good they were. You can go a whole pace cycle and not even get in the game. But you were needed on June 30th, 2006, a day game in San Diego that ends up going 14 innings, yeah. and you pitched four scoreless innings to get your major league first major league win. My one and only. That was it. That was yeah. That was that's one to remember. And you know the the funny part about that one was that the day before, um, I had pitched two innings in San Diego, and I think it was the day before that my dad had called. He was in Vegas here, pastoring a church here in Vegas. Um, and he called me the day before um, we went to San Diego, and he says, "Hey, Ron, I'm thinking of going down to San Diego and and see if I can, you know, catch a game." And I'm like, "Dad, great, come on down. It's a six-hour drive or so from Vegas, five, six hours." But Dad, it's probably a good chance I'm not going to pitch. You know, I'm, I'm again, I hadn't thrown in a whole pace cycle once. You know, and so he's like, "No, I just want to come, and we'll go to dinner afterwards." Well, that night he got to the game, and that night I actually pitched. I pitched two innings. I did pretty good. Two innings. I gave him a solo home run to uh, Piazza, one of the hardest hit balls I think in the history of mankind. <laughs> Um, and, but that was it. It was the two innings that were pretty clean. And afterwards we went to dinner and my, I was, my dad, how do you do it? Dad, like you show up to one game and I get two innings and he's like, yeah, well me and God, you know, it's all good, you know? <laughs> and so afterwards it's like midnight, 1230 at night. Cause we just had dinner after a night game. And, um, he's like, man, I got a long drive and it's already to midnight. And he's kind of giving me puppy dog eyes. Like, what am I going to do? I'm like, dad, come crash in my hotel room. You know, like come crash. And I, it, the next day was the the last game of the road trip, you know, and so it's a getaway day. It's a one o'clock game. And so we got to be at the field early, like eight, you know, rookies usually get there at eight, eight thirty in the morning, you know? 
And my dad, I, we go to my hotel room and um, I go into the hallway to call my wife. I'm excited. I just pitched, you know, I'm talking to her for a while. And I come back in and my dad's asleep and he was planning on leaving like at six in the morning to drive back. Um, my, my family is particularly all the guys. We all have deviated septums. Okay. You know where I'm going with this. He snores. All of us. So it's not just my dad. It's all of us. But so it's basically a rush to who's going to fall asleep first. Cause the other person's just not. And I, he was out and I laid in bed staring at the ceiling from 1230 until his alarm went off at 630 in the morning. No sleep at all. Bro, I, I, it was just not happening, you know? He didn't try to, like, roll him over, put Dude. a pillow on the side of his nose or Bro, anything? he was out. And, I, you know, we're, I'm the same way. My wife, well, you know, if I'm really tired and, or something, I'm sick or something, there's no stopping me. I'll, I'll, I'm, it sounds like trucks downshifting on the highway, you know? Like the, la, you know, like it's like, <laughs> uh-huh. like you don't think they're going to make it through the night, you know? And so... Of course, shaking, you get a little breather, and of course it comes back. And Bro, he, his alarm finally went off at, I think, 6.30 or 7 in the morning. He gets up quietly, gets his stuff, and leaves. I'm on no sleep. I sleep for an hour until my alarm goes off, and i got to get to the field. I put my suit on, walk down to the field, and, bro, I'm a mess. Like, no sleep, you know? I'm, and people are looking at me like, Flo, did, did you guys go to the bar last night? Your dad's a pastor, but did you guys tie one on because you, got, you had a good outing the other day? And I'm like, no, I, he, I, didn't, I didn't sleep, blah, blah, blah. They're like, whatever, you know? So I bunch of Red Bulls and coffee just to try to survive the day. And I'm thinking, well, all is good. I pitched two innings yesterday. I'm not going to pitch today. Well, if that ain't the kiss of death, you know, mm-hmm. I'm in the bullpen. The entire bullpen gets wore out by the ninth inning. It's just Houston Street in the bullpen and me. Street goes in there to pitch the ninth inning. All we're going to do is have him close the game down and the game's over. I'm, I'm scot-free. He, of course, gives up the lead. It's tie game, and we're going to the top of the 10th. The phone rings, and the bullpen coach picks up, and he's like, he knows what's going on. He knows what happened, and he's looking at me. He gives me that nod. You got it, and it's yours until it's over. Like, oh, my gosh. <laughs> and I could just envision my dad's face driving back on the 15 freeway, like laughing hysterically, you know? Like, uh, and, and so I, it was and in a funny way when I got out into the field, I remember thinking, like, Whatever, I, whatever happens, happens. I'm on no sleep, so if it's bad, at least I have an excuse. I'm just going to air it out, whatever. And it kind of relaxed me a little bit, and I stayed within my game. I wasn't trying to overthrow or do anything too much. And guys just kept getting themselves out, you know. Changeup was working. Everyone was trying to hit a home run because, I remember, it was really hot that day. It was. And everyone just wanted – it was a day game, and everyone wanted to go home. And I'm throwing good change-ups, and they're popping them up, and I'm like – Okay, 10th inning, 11th inning, 12th inning. I actually got an at-bat that game. My one and only professional at-bat. And it was against Alan Embry, the powered lefty reliever, in the what are the, the 12th inning or so. I remember sitting in the dugout and having the ammonia ice towel hanging uh-huh. over me because it was so hot. And I'm like, someone just please end the game. <laughs> but I knew that I still had to pitch the last inning. Even if we did score a bunch of runs, I got to pitch again. you know. And so I'm trying to cool off. And someone comes over to me. He's like, Flores, you're in the hole. You're batting this inning. What? That's a thing? You know, we're, we're in the American League, you know? And they're like, no, you're in the hole, bro. It's, it's, uh, it's Swisher, and then it's Chavez, and then it's you. And Zito comes running over, and he's like, bro, do you have a bat? And I'm like, bro, I haven't owned a bat since high school. And he's like, okay, what kind of bat do you want? And I'm like, the smallest one you could find. And he's like, I got you. And Zito sprints up. To, to get his bat, he had a small little pea shooter guy. You know, when he comes back, he gives me his number 75 helmet and his batting gloves, and he gives me this little tiny bat, and he says, do your best, bro. I go out there, Swisher struck out on three pitches. 
Chavez goes out. He strikes out on three pitches, and so I come up, and I'm the third hitter. And I stand in the box, and I still know I got I got to pitch the next inning still, you know. And so I dig in, and I'm like, okay, I'm not going to pitch. I'm not going to swing at the first pitch. Um, and Embry throws from the first base side of the rubber, and he throws across his body, and I'm a lefty swing. It felt like he was throwing it from behind my back, you know. And he throws 98 miles an hour right down the middle, and I step in the bucket just to get out of the way. And it felt like it was a mile outside, and it was called a strike. It was down the middle. I saw the video. It was right down the middle. It felt like it was in the you know in the opposing batter's box, you know. And so I go, okay, I I, I got to try to put the ball in play here. And so I was like, I got to get my swing started really early. And so he throws this pitch, and my swing was so early that I was actually through the swing before the ball was even halfway to the plate. It was embarrassing, you know, and I kind of tapped my feet like, that was dumb, you know. <laughs> and so it's 0-2 now, and he throws another pitch. And I'm thinking to myself, if he throws a breaking ball, he's the biggest wuss in baseball. Like, look at me. Throw a fastball. Right. I'm, I'm, I'm just selling out that it's not going to be a breaking ball. And he throws another fastball, and I remember hitting it as late as you possibly can out of the cat, almost out of the catcher's glove, and I fouled it straight, you know, down the third baseline, way foul, you know. And I'm thinking, wow, okay, I was really early the first pitch, and then really late the second pitch. I think I'm on this. Like I think, like part of me was thinking, like it was all coming back, like high <laughs> senior year in high school. Like I can, I can hit a line drive up the middle. I think I can, you know. I think he's going to throw another fastball. And he's, he better not throw a breaking ball. Here we go. And he threw another fastball. And, Josh, I was right on it, bro. It felt like I was going to hit a line drive up the middle. And I topped it, and it went straight down to the plate and bounced off the plate, went straight up super high. And I stood there and watched it, and the catcher grabbed it and tagged me out. And the umpire said, you're out. And the whole stadium erupted in laughter. Like, you're a boat. Like, you don't know. I don't know what I was doing. Like, and, and I'm dragging my bat back to the, club, to the dugout, and I still got to go into the game to pitch. Like, it was – actually, later – in Kangaroo Court, like a week or two later, Kendall, Jason Kendall, he was the judge for Kangaroo Court. He gave me a $25 credit in Kangaroo Court because I put the ball in play and Swisher and Chavez didn't. <laughs> so you know, then I threw another inning and got out of that one. And then we scored a run or so, I think one or two runs the next inning. And they pulled uh, Go- Chad Godin. Um, he was had tennis shoes on. He was going to be one of the starters in a couple of days, and they said, "Hey, you got to throw this last inning." And he he luckily got out of that next inning, and I got my first my first major league win. That's awesome! Crazy crazy day. It was so much fun. That is fabulous. Yeah, that is fabulous. Okay, after uh, you signed with the Cardinals, two thousand eight. Yep. And your brother's still pitching for the Cardinals. Yep, he was in the big leagues for the last few years there. Uh, one World Series. So did you guys get to room together in spring training? Or what was spring training like? Oh, spring training. What did we do? No, I, I mean, I was, we were both married and, you know, I had kids. And so I found a little place in the same area as him. But, we, you know, we were together all the time in spring training. And then, um, you know, I, uh, uh, when, we, when the season started, um, he was obviously in the big leagues. And I was in Memphis the whole year. And it was clear by the middle of the year that, I, you know, I wasn't, I, I wasn't in their plans. I wasn't going up. And so I was like, okay, let's just have a good season. My brother, he injured his ankle in the big leagues, like in late July. And so when he was rehabbing his ankle, he came to Memphis and was there for almost an entire month. He was there all of August. Oh, as, wow. And so the, both of us were in the Memphis bullpen together all of August 2008. We still talk about it to this day. Every now and then I'll text him and say, remember August 08? It, it was like, it, I mean, he was, he's four years older than me. So we were never in high school together. We were never in college together. We were in different organizations. We were doing our own thing. And so there was never a time where we were on the same team ever, you know. But that was the one time, August 08, 
And, and you know, I mean, you know baseball life where uh, uh, whoever in a team of 25, the handful of guys that have the most major league service time on that team, they kind of run the team. Mm-hmm. You know, they're the ones that call the shots. The one, everyone defers to them. What's their opinion on things, how things should be run. The, the culture of the team is really decided by the veterans. Yeah. You know? Well, I mean, I was one of those veterans in Memphis. I was one of the handful of guys that had, you know, some pretty significant – not a ton, but in, in AAA, I was one of the one of the guys that had the most service time, and so I kind of was one of those like culture setting guys that were in charge, and we, uh, you know me and a couple of buddies, we kind of did what we wanted, but then when Randy came, it I was like, so I was like kind of like the team captain, like for the first four months of the year. When Randy came, I was like super captain. Like now we could, I could do whatever I wanted. Now I got a six year major league veteran brother with me, and we're. Peas in a pod and goofy and silly. And so we, that whole month, it was probably the funnest. Did you room together month. on the road or would you have separate rooms? No, we roomed together. We, okay. did, we did everything. It was, gosh, it was so much fun. We goofed off during games. We, the bullpen was just, is just, was just a madhouse. We were always clowning around. There, you know, it was, God, it, was, uh, it was about as fun a month as I remember the big leagues ever, or the minor leagues ever being. At the same time, when he first got hurt, did you think, "Oh, my brother got hurt. Maybe I can go to the major leagues now." <laughs> well, they had who did they have? They had Jaime Garcia at the time, and he was their hot shot prospect. He was good. He really was, you know. And he, had, he ended up having a good, solid major league career. So they had they had him that was there. Who else did they have? They had another um, Jaime Garcia was the one. It was clear if there was going to be a lefty that was needed, it was going to be him. So it was like, kind of, but it was like, no, it's going to be Jaime. Yeah, you know, and so. Um, it, 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 ideally, it would have been fun for the both of us to be in the big leagues. Like, that would be fun, you know, mm-hmm. but the second best thing was, was that, you know. So, That's awesome. Yeah, it was a good run. That's really cool. I remember when, my, when I first got called up to the big leagues in Oakland, uh, Randy was in the big leagues with the Cardinals. And so, um, uh, especially after, I think after your article that you had just read earlier about, you know, and so I was showing it to my brother and, you know, my dad was showing it to him. And my, I remember Randy telling me the story that he was in the big league bullpen in car- with the Cardinals and he was just so excited. He was like, my brother's in the big leagues, you know, and it was just, you know, this article was cool that, you know, that there's two brothers that are both, you know, that, that both ha- are both college grads are both in the big leagues, both lefties. It's a really cool story. And he said that Jason Isringhausen, like the closer for the uh-huh. Cardinals, he's a funny dude. I, I knew him a bit later when I would play with the Cardinals a little bit. Um, he said, "Flores, it's not it's not news that you, you, that there was two the two brothers in the big leagues. The biggest news is that two Mexicans went to college at all." <laughs> that sounds like Israel Nelson. That sounds like it. We laughed and it was the best, you know. But uh, so I remember uh, one of the, I think it was one of the writers for Cardinals said that me and Randy were the Gramatica brothers of the major, of the major leagues, you know, <laughs> like the random brothers pitching in the randoms position, trying to make a career out of it. Like that was, that was me and Randy. Uh, so 2009 ends up being the last year of your career. Yeah. And you mentioned earlier you were with the Reds in spring training, spring training with the, <clears throat> with the Cincinnati Reds. And then yeah. you go to the Long Island Ducks of the independent Atlantic league. Yep. When did you know this is it? Um, I think I knew before I even got to, to Long Island. I mean, I, I was in big leagues camp with the Cincinnati Reds, and it was actually, it was actually uh, my, my brother and a couple other people had convinced me, try dropping down, be a drop-down lefty. Really? Yeah. Um, and so I goofed off with it towards the tail end of my time in Memphis, and then all off-season I went to winter ball and I tried it, and I went into spring training with the Reds as a sidearm lefty. And I saw, I've seen tape of myself. It, it was, it was terrible. It, I was like, 
I was like a guy that was pretending to lean over, but then at the last second would come back up straight. <laughs> and so when I when you really see the the frame where I'm actually throwing from, it just looks like I'm slightly lower arm angle. I'm not even sure why it, it's just a really dramatic lower arm angle. Um, but I went into spring training and I actually, actually doing pretty good. It was I was funky and guys couldn't get a read on the ball and I was throwing good. I was throwing, throwing okay. And I remember getting down to the very tail end of spring training. It was actually almost April. I think it was the end of March or early April, and there was there was eight guys that were still in the bullpen, and they were going to keep seven, and I was one of them. And they called me at the last day of spring training. They called me into the clubhouse. Dusty Baker was there, and Jockety was there, mm-hmm. and they said, "Flores, we we're sorry. We have to. We, we tried to trade you. We know it's late in spring training, and there's not a whole lot of openings." There wasn't really any AAA team that can take you. Were you out of options? They they weren't going to send you to the... Yeah, I burned them all with Oakland three, okay. three years in a row. And so there was no space in Louisville. They tried to... They were... Jockety knew Randy from the Cardinals, and he was trying to take care of me. And, you know, I had a good spring. And they're like, we're really sorry. We tried to figure out a place for you to go to AAA, but there's just no jobs right now. We're going to have to release you. And so I we packed our... My wife and I and our three kids at the time packed our car, drove all the way back to Vegas. And I was hoping that there would be, you know, just teams knocking down my door to get them to get me there. And I, I mean, I, my agent was like, "Man, I can't even get you a double A job right now." It was, it was, it was like, I, I remember getting to a point where I was talking with my dad, saying, "How much longer do I just wait?" Around? I was throwing baseballs against a fence here at a high school in Vegas just to try to keep my arm. Every, all my baseball, the season's going, you know. And deciding, okay, if I don't hear anything from anybody by May, you know, I'm, I'm going to go play indie ball, you know. And so. Once that date came and it was like, ah, here we are, here's here we that are. date. Let's go, let's go play and, you know, let me see if I can catch fire by throwing sidearm and, and maybe something will happen. That's what you're hoping for, just to catch fire and catch a break. And it was, you know, uh, it was, not, I, I, the writing was on the wall, it was over, you know, and it was actually kind of helpful. Like it, my, my career didn't end with an injury. It didn't end with, you know, be, me being, you know, hosed by a, a coach or a new guy, guy coming in and taking my spot. Like it was the, my descent in, out of baseball was very gradual, mm-hmm. you know? And so I knew it was coming. I brought my kids onto the field during batting practice. I went on road trips with, I didn't even care. I was like, this is it. It's over. Let's have some fun, you know? And so, um, I mean, I remember reading someplace that, what is it? Like, a. uh, Ninety-nine percent of professional athletes retire badly. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, not everybody gets the Derek Jeter, you know, or Kareem Abdul-Jabbar fare, farewell tour. You know, what's the line? Um, uh, everything ends badly. Otherwise, mm-hmm. otherwise it wouldn't end. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, and so, but I was I was one of the fortunate one percent. I really was. That I, I I I knew that my time was up. I still had a whole season to enjoy myself, and I knew this was my last go. Um, and so when I retired, it was like, yeah, it's time. My kids are my my oldest son was in school age, and it was. I think it's time. You know, I think it's time for me to to let this go. It's amazing to me how many players I've talked to whose final year was in independent baseball. Yeah, and they say like how much just fun it was, and it made it easier for them to go out yeah. on their own terms because they weren't worried yeah. about things that they worried about when they were playing affiliated minor league ball. So true, man. I mean, it's. They, and and the, and the especially the Atlantic League and particularly Long Island, they really do their best to make it really professional. It's really, Long Island was fun. They had five six thousand people every night, and it was a fun clubhouse, and it was just a bunch of guys that were just kind of happy to be there, and were you know, but at the same time cranky. It was a, it's a funny vibe, you know, mm-hmm. like cranky happy guys, you know, that were just glad to be putting on a uniform, and so it really was. It was it was a it was a smooth transition, much much more so than had I just quit after getting released by the Reds. You know, it was it really was the five months that I needed to be able to say goodbye to the game. I mean, it's retiring from baseball, it's like they call it the first death in your life. 
it's like losing a family member, mm-hmm. you know, unless someone of course has died before that, but it, it, it's, it, it does feel like it's the first death in your life where you have to move on. Your whole identity is wrapped up in, I'm, I'm Ron Flores, the ball player. I'm Ron Flores, the guy with the change up, you know, mm-hmm. I'm the guy that's got some big league time, but that was, that's who you are. And then when that is removed, it's like, who even am I? Like, I don't even know who, how to even relate to the world. So it is, it, it the, independent ball was really the saving grace to help me transition out of ball. So in this Oakland Tribune article in 2005, written by some Suchon, Suchin, Suchon, <laughs> whoever, I don't know how to pronounce his name. Yeah. Uh, it also goes on to say that uh, Flores knows he'll probably still need that real job one day. He majored in economics at USC and would love to be a broker down on the trading floor. That was my goal. Yeah. That was I it. also read an article where you said you thought about maybe being a pitching coach or being uh, getting into scouting. Your brother is the uh, uh, scouting director for the Cardinals. Yeah. Um, you also had been a, uh, a substitute teacher in between um, minor league seasons. Yep. And I'd read an article you said you might become a teacher. Yeah. But you did not do any of those things. None of those things. What were the paths that led to you to this current life? Well, um, su- substitute teaching was something that I did just because, I mean, it was something my brother did. You know, and it was, and it was an easy 100 bucks in California, and you're done before uh, by 3 p.m. And there's still daylight to, to play catch, mm-hmm. you know. Um, they call it educated babysitting. That's what they call it, you know? And so, um, and in, in that world for long enough where it was like, maybe, you know, teaching is a formidable profession and I can be a baseball coach and that sounds kind of fun, you know? And, and so that was kind of like the, the thought process Well, when I'm done from baseball, that, that could be an option. And then you get into baseball and it's like, well, I kind of like to stick around baseball. Like, gosh, that sounds like really fun. I'll do anything, you know, to stay in baseball. But then realizing at towards, especially towards the end of my career that even the, every coach, even the major league coaches, those guys are, those guys grind. It is a grind. It's like all of the negative side of the, of the game with none of the good side, none of the glamour. Like there's none of the, the, the high pay, the TV time. I mean, we're all, all of us play, play a game and we eat a steak dinner in the clubhouse and then we leave and all the coaches are just getting started. They got to input all the data and they're there all night and they got to be there the next day and they got to play batting practice. So it was like, and those guys, that, they're here after 10 years of grinding this out in minor league ballparks. Like, do, is that really, is, do I love the game that much to leave my kids? Do I love it enough to do that? I'm not sure I want to do that. Then finding out that the front office is even worse. My brother works his tail off. He, he actually... He's actually assistant GM now of the Cardinals. He just got a, a recent promotion, and he loves his gig, and he's got a great family that supports him. But he's he's on the road a lot, and he's a road dog, and he works his tail off. It's not, it's not a, it's not as glamorous as it might be made out to seem from the ex- outside looking in. And so, I retired at the end of '09, thinking, what the? I don't know what I'm going to do. Teaching is like, Ugh. is that what I want to do? I'm not sure if that's. I'm thinking about it, you know, and then. Um, baseball, it didn't look like I had any prospects for that. And I'm not even sure that I would want to, even if I had the opportunity. And it was right towards the end of my last season that my dad uh, reached out and said, Hey, there's an opening uh, at my, at the church that, uh, you know, he was past, has been pastoring there for the youth pastor. Hey, we just, our youth pastor just stepped down and he actually, the, our, the previous youth pastor actually recommended you and your wife to take over. And I'm like, really? Maybe, I don't know, you know? And he said, well, just do it for a year on a volunteer basis, you know, and help us out. And I'm like, all right, I can do it. I can do it for a year, you know, and I was thinking 
I'll clean up, I'll clean some things up in the youth group and then mm-hmm. I'll pass it on to the next guy. You know, I, I told Portia, my wife, I said, we can do anything for a year. And she reminded me, Ron, we haven't done anything for a year ever. <laughs> like we've been on the road. We never stayed anywhere for longer than a couple of months. Like, what do you mean we can do anything for a year? And she was right. But we were already pot committed by then. And it was probably about two, three months into that year that we just fell in love with ministry and we fell in love with that, the youth group. And we, it was like, this is what I feel like was though we're, we're meant to do what we're meant to be. And so, um, I got hired on staff at that church um, at the end of 2010. So I retired at the end of 09 from baseball, started youth pastor in the beginning of 2010, got hired onto the church staff by the end of 2010. And in 2015, November in 2015, five years later, we got appointed as the lead, lead pastors of that same church. So we took over from my dad. So you're here in Las Vegas, which is known as Sin City. Yeah. <laughs> How does that change being a pastor when you're in Sin City? You know what, Vegas is, it's, it really is two towns. It really the is. The Strip and the, everywhere else? And everywhere else. You know, it's, and in, in, in a lot of regards, it, it really, the, the part of Vegas that is not the Strip, everywhere else, it's kind of a small town. It really, everyone knows everybody. You know, like there's, there's connections like crazy, work connections, uh, uh, you know, uh, hotel connections. So everyone knows everybody, you know. It's, it really is a small town in that regard. And it really is a, um, a churched town one of the most churched town there's more, more it's on the high end in america of churches per capita like there's it really is a lot a lot of churches you know and so um it really is woven into the to the culture of the city that um that faith does play a, a prominent role in the lives of of the everyday citizens now that like the strip is i think of the strip now i think of traffic you know i right. think of i think of bad billboards that i want to have my kids look at the ipad as we're driving by you know like isn't that something nice on your ipad yeah. you know and and, and try, try to avoid it and it's a fun place to go to for a nice restaurant or a hotel for a anniversary or whatever but and the majority of the city kind of thinks of it that way it's either a, a source of industry a job or it's a a place to go for a birthday, maybe, you know, mm-hmm. uh, but the rest of the town really is a normal, it really is a normal town. And, um, there's, there really is lots of opportunities for ministry. I'm trying to think of what's the, the best way to ask this next question. Um, how did you reconcile as when you were a player, let's face it, baseball players are not choir boys. Yeah. As, as someone whose faith was very important to him, how did you reconcile that your teammates are doing things that may not have your values? It's, I mean, geez, it's what you're taught as a kid growing up is the day's coming when you're going to have to, you're not going to be in your, your protective church bubble, <laughs> you know, and this, you're going to have to take your faith for a spin and mm-hmm. see, can it stand on its own two feet, you know? And so yeah, every, every industry, whether it's, whether it's a professional industry or even college, oftentimes, you know, college can gobble up church kids, mm-hmm. you know, where it's just too much, too fast, you know? Um, and so it was... Uh, it was. It wasn't a surprise to me. I went to USC, and that was that's a fun school, and there's a lot of act- activity there, you mm-hmm. know. And so, and my parents were wise in that they they weren't they didn't shelter me. It wasn't I, I wasn't overly protected where it was. I just went nuts the second I got out of the house, you know. And so it was there was a, a bit smoother and wiser of a transition for me. And so there was in, in a certain sense there there I, it felt like I was prepared for um, what I was about to encounter, mm-hmm. you know, and that. You, what you do is you try to surround yourself with as many people that are like-minded as you as possible, you know? And so uh, every team has a, has a 
baseball chapel and like a weekly thing to get together. Most teams, you try to find a guy or two that you can connect with and room with and do life with, you know. And then in Oakland, especially, they had they had the the Sunday morning chapels with Donnie Moore and that whole the Who's whole crew. Who's a huge dude, huge dude, and it was fun and it was a, it was an exciting environment and the team embraced that whole that whole ministry and so that was really fun, you know, and so. Every team was a little bit different. They did like these feats of strength, dude, right? Power. Where they were like breaking like wood and breaking bricks, and the power team is what they were called. They would do. They would once a year. They would they would do all the tear, you know, the phone books in half and like chest bump. It was really fun, you know. Um, That's not what most people think of when they think of church. They don't <laughs> no, think of tearing yeah. tearing up a phone book. They <laughs> phone had, books. They had a knack, man, for getting you know people in the door, and and uh, and so every team was a little bit different in terms of okay, who who are my guys here? Who 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 am I going to surround myself with? to um to be positive influences on me and to make some good choices and so there were some some seasons were better than others um some uh, it, you felt like you're on your own and you and sometimes felt like you got sucked away a little bit but it was overall it felt like i was fortunate to have some good people around me every year when you're speaking now at your church yeah. how often do you use either baseball analogies or sports analogies way more than they're probably comfortable with you know like i'll say it all the time like i'm sorry it's just another baseball story i'm sorry <laughs> if you're going to be a member at this church then you better get used to this you know like this is just how it is and it's kind of a joke around the church mm-hmm. like no he's going here's another baseball story mm-hmm. you know and so it's 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 it, it's uh people that seem to be you know the people that, that at least stick around <laughs> or that feel um, you know, are are affected hopefully positively by it. So, do any uh, moms and dads come up and say, uh, "Hey, uh, I got this son. Uh, Johnny's a lefty. Uh, do you also do pitching lessons on the side?" <laughs> a lot, a lot. And you know what? It's like like club baseball. It feels like a zillion dollar industry. You know, parents want the very best for their kids. You know, and so they'll look for anybody that has some type of experience. And so you'll, you'll play, you know, little league baseball and like there's flyers everywhere going to where with Oh, there's a guy that got, got the double A and he's giving out lessons for 50 bucks a pop. Like 50 bucks for an hour. My gosh, what a racket. <laughs> I was in the big leagues. I could charge you. I, what, would you, I could charge you 200 bucks for this, you know? And so and people are like, Ron, if you did that and you organized it, you can make a ton of money, you know, like that's, that's, it really is. People are looking for quality, you know, knowledgeable people to teach their kids, you know? And so, um, yeah, I, it happens more and more than you think. I read some. Uh, I found some LA Times article where you and your brother and your dad put together some type of camp. Yeah, uh, for through the church. Yeah, through, um, when when was it? When my brother was, I think my dad first started it when my brother just got out of USC. Um, he was in minor league ball, and he was. My dad was thinking, what if we did something for the community? What if we just held a free baseball clinic and R- Randy, you get all of your pro ball buddies and Ron, you get all of your college buddies and we'll do this one day, several hours on the, fr- it was the first Saturday of the year, every year for like maybe four or five years in a row. And from five-year-olds to 12-year-olds, we invited them and it was free and we usually got a couple hundred kids and we would do an all-day baseball clinic. And then at the end, we, you know, we'd preach the gospel and we would, you know, we'd, we'd, we'd shake hands and give autographs. And it was like this really fun way to connect with the community and to get, kind of give back a little bit mm-hmm. and to capitalize on my brother's name and, and my name. We were both widely known in the city that we were from. Pico Rivera is a, a small town in that regard. And, and we were probably the, the you know, at, at that time, the, 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 the ones that were at the highest level of, of athletics from the people that were uh, still playing, you know. And so... It was a fun few years. It really was. We got all sorts of guys to come out there. Kotze was there one year with my brother. Um, Seth Etherton was there. It was a fun. It was a fun few. Morgan Ensberg, a lot of good guys from USC and pro ball that were there, um, and we're just goofing off, you know, teaching kids how to. 
it was we just made it work like I, there was one group where i was teaching kids how to like drag bunt you know <laughs> like man i hadn't done anything for a while you know i'm like okay you're gonna want to get that bad head out you know and like telling six-year-olds so you're just making it work you know and it was more of a way to just like to give back to the community it was a fun it was a fun few years it really was how much do you still watch baseball these days and when you do what 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 jumps out at you like what 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 makes you interested in baseball now I mostly follow – I follow the Cardinals because of Randy. Mm-hmm. Um, my my two boys are head over heels in love with the Oakland A's. Okay. They love them, my oldest especially. What are their ages right now? My oldest is 19. My youngest is 11. Okay. Um, Do you recall when they realized that dad once played in the major leagues? Um, yeah. It, was, it wasn't until years later, you know. Um, um, I mean, my oldest was when I was in the big leagues. I think he was, you know, five, six, seven, and he was in the kids' room goofing off, playing his his DS Nintendo thing with the other kids. You know, he, he was he, he was just having some fun. And he he like years later, he he's like even like just recently, he like man, I, I can't believe I should have gone to the games. Like, what was I thinking? You know, <laughs> it was like man, you're five years old. Like how could you even know? You know, so now it's like he he um, he's really interested in following the A's just because there's that kind of connection. And so he's, he's got alerts on his phone and every day he's like, yeah, they won again. They're two games back of the wild card. It's really fun. <laughs> it's really fun to like actually live it out with them now, you know, in a way that was impossible when they were just so young. Um, um, but yeah, they, they, so when I watch baseball, it's usually follow guys, individuals, you know, um, the Cardinals. And then of course the Do- I'm a Dodgers guy, you know? And so, um, um, what's, what'd you, what'd you ask? What stands out from baseball? What stands out for me is just how, how much it's like, it's like the, the, um, statistical analysis that Oakland began when I was just getting into the big leagues. It like spawned a whole like subculture of statistical analysis now that is it's so all-encompassing you know like back when i was there like uh ops was a big stat on base plus slugging percentage it was like oh you're such a stat rat you know right. you're, you know your ops <laughs> like that's like the most base stat now that right. everyone like come on it's the now there's all now it's ops plus and right. now it's what is all these even? other park factors i and... don't even know how they do it but you know and so it like it's 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 cool in a way to see that we were part of that the dawn of that era, you know, like that Oakland and the team that I was a part of really was the be in a large part uh, the beginning of that whole way of seeing the game in a broader sense. Yeah, yeah, it's crazy to me that I was you know reporting on it and not even realizing the the big picture of what of where this was going. Yeah, and and now. And then it was just like the A's versus everyone. And yeah. now it's you no. Know, now everyone has yeah. such enormous um, analytical teams that it's. Yeah, if you if you're not using it now, you're a dinosaur. I, what's What's funny is is seeing. I mean, my brother actually is in that world now. You know, and so and the Cardinals are are a very you know they're a progressive team in the sense of they want to be on the cutting edge of all of this 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 data analysis but also at the same time they really do have a huge crop of of old school classic guys that are really good at boots on the ground scouting you know and so one of one of my brother's jobs as the director of scouting and now as assistant gm is trying to marry the two and how to get them to integrate in a way that makes sense for both you know um that you're using the the analysis uh techniques that are available but also at the same time giving credence to and weight to 
um, the the boots on the ground workers that it can actually watch a game and see something that maybe data can't tell you. You know, yeah. so it really is a, a unique a unique way to try to get the most. I mean, some teams have sold out to one or the other. Some teams have sold out. We're all data. We don't care about as much as scouting. And some are like, you know what? We're going to leave that behind and just do the classic scouting boots on the ground work. Um, the good ones are the ones that know how to use them both. And that's what, that's what he's trying to do. He's really good at it too. Yeah. All right. We should probably wrap up here. Um, when's the last time you threw batting practice or you threw the ball? In a, in a somewhat competitive sense. In a competitive sense? Oh, my gosh. I, th- I tried to throw batting practice to my youngest son's baseball team last Little League um, season, and my shoulder my shoulder's mush, bro. It is. It feels like an old – when I move it, it sounds like an old wooden clock just clunking, <laughs> you know, and it feels like someone put, like, a cake mixer thing in there and just, just turned it on full blast. And so it is mush. <laughs> And so I, I throw darts, you know, like really gingerly, you know. And so when I really want to throw hard, I got to throw with my right arm. I'm getting actually pretty effective. Really? Yeah. You're going to be another Pat Vendetti? <laughs> that sounds awesome, man, to be able to do both. But, yeah, the, I, uh, batting practice and playing light catch with my kids is the extent of my, of my throwing days these days. I did a podcast with Pat ben- Vendetti. Um, he's incredible. He yeah. threw four innings against the Isotopes earlier this year. It's unbelievable to see just how effortlessly he goes. I mean, he he switched back and forth the yeah, whole time. Yeah, the entire wow. time. Yeah, amphibious. Yeah, no, ambidextrous. Ambidextrous. Amphibious is the, is the <laughs> fish. There's there's headlines where they where they get that wrong. <laughs> it doesn't have scales, right? <laughs> yeah. Oh man, that's awesome. Yeah. This was fun. Yeah. Thanks so much, dude. My pleasure, man. This was uh, thanks for the invite. This is really cool. Yeah, thanks to Johnny Daskal. Another shout out to Johnny D for hooking us up. That guy's the man, isn't he? he really I get is. to go see him Monday. All right, what a treat! That yeah. guy's legit, and the, the 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 perfect minor league game would be listening to going back and forth between you and Johnny D. <laughs> the the River Cats playing the Isotopes. That's the perfect. <laughs> that's the perfect Triple A game for me. Yeah, that's bo- that's what Johnny and I both really aspired to is the being the perfect Triple A broadcasters. <laughs> <laughs> And to have someone like me, the perfect AAA player, picture, that's the that's the greatest game you could play. Right? There we go. That's what you dream about your entire career. <laughs> that sounds good to me. That's Ron Flores, and this was Life Around the Seams. 